What is going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Faith Unaltered. I'm your host, Tyler Fowler, and with me, I have two very distinguished guests with me tonight to discuss Calvinism. Phil Bear, Jordan Hatfield. Guys, how are you doing tonight? Good and well. Very okay. well. Right on, right on. Jordan, actually, so you've been releasing uh, some videos that you have. did with Josh and I on this very topic. And so I thought yeah. that given that Phil, we had this uh, interview scheduled now for uh, about a month and a half, couple months. Um, I thought it would be fun to bring you on with us as well and kind of do a part three in a sense, because I know you've released two parts to, to the uh, to the interview that we did, but maybe some follow up right. on that to get your position on Calvinism as well. And so uh, we've invited uh, Phil also. And since this is Phil's first time, I will give him uh, a little time here in the beginning to introduce himself. But before we jump into that, I want to thank everybody for joining us this evening. I am the solo host. Josh is out doing a benefit for the mission where he gets to dress up all fancy like and talk to uh, a bunch of different people about what the mission is doing uh, out in California where he's at. And so I'm this excited. This is bald Josh now, right? This is bald Josh now. So for, those, Josh. That, yeah. for those that don't know, we hit our 2000 subscriber goal. Uh, we did that before the end of the year. And if that were it, since that was the case, we had a 2000 sub club party uh, where Josh actually shaved his head. Uh, his wife did it for him. And that was a that was a fun, fun little show. Uh, Jack White was the winner of our hundred dollar uh, gift card giveaway. And if Jack, if you're watching this now or if you'll watch this here in a little bit, uh, I'm going to email you uh, either tonight or tomorrow whenever I get off here. Uh, or tomorrow and give you an update about that. Uh, but but regardless, uh, if y'all haven't seen that, check that out. You'll get to see Josh shave his head. That was fun. Um, but but yes, yes, we did. But uh, I would like to encourage everyone. Uh, we are listener supported in more than one way. And so if y'all would please pray for us, continue to pray for our ministry, continue to pray for the host. Uh, those of you should know my wife uh, is pregnant. And she is due January the 16th. And so that is coming up quicker and quicker every single day. And so we're excited. This will be our second little girl. Um, her name will be, or well, her name is now Eden, uh, Eden Sophia Renee Fowler. And so uh, with that being said, uh, just to pray for her, uh, you know, this third trimester now, it's, it's a little overbearing uh, for her physically and emotionally. And so, uh, yeah, just just pray for her if you would. Uh, also, uh, David, David Russell, he is sick tonight. And pray for him uh, for better health. And and I know he's uh, he's got a lot of stress emotionally with him. But uh, but other than that, just just pray for us all in general, if you would. If you'd like to donate financially to keep us going, uh, we are listener funded as well. You can do that one of uh, one of four ways, really. The first way to do that would be super chats. If you have a question for me or for the panel, then you can give us a super chat. Those questions will be addressed uh, in this video for sure. Uh, the other way you can do that is supporting via PayPal, Venmo, 
or Cash App. And all of those links are in the description below. And so not only do we thank our listeners uh, for showing up, but we thank Phil and Jordan for joining me tonight. But Phil, I will go ahead and turn it over to you, brother. If you would just give a little background, how you got into, which is an interesting story, by the way, how you actually got into investigating Calvinism and what led you really to end up rejecting the premises uh, of Calvinism that are purported by Calvinists. So brother, over to you. Thanks. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. And uh, this is a lot of fun. Um, I, uh, I actually uh, was a member of a Christian rock band when I was in my early 20s called the Soul Peace Band for Jesus Christ. Nice. And we were doing a lot of songs by my favorite band of all time, which is Daniel Amos. And the leader of that band was also the pastor of a small house church. And he told me that if I was going to be a member of the band, that I needed to be a member of his church, that that's only the right thing to do. So I started going to that church and turned out that he was a hardcore Calvinist. And so um, I went to a rehearsal with the bass player of the band. And instead of rehearsing, he wanted to talk. And he asked me if I believed in election. And I said, yeah, I think it's the best way to start to choose our president by far. <laughs> and, and I had no idea what he was talking about. And, um, and so he started explaining the idea of election, you know, that God elects certain people to be saved and elects other people not to be saved. Um, we don't have a choice in the matter. It's all up to his divine counsel and his divine will. He makes his decision in eternity past, um, and we really have nothing to do with it. Um, mm -hmm. And so uh, I, I was rather dismayed by this new doctrine that I'd never heard before. Um, and so I started reading the uh, the Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, um, which is the basis for what he was telling me. And I also started uh, searching through the Bible to find confirmation or a denial of this doctrine. And these doctrines actually a family of them. And I, uh, I reached the conclusion that this was an unbiblical doctrine and that the Bible actually taught the opposite um, because I read all sorts of verses that said that Jesus Christ died for all people, um, that uh, salvation by grace is available to all, that, that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, to all people. And so I brought up these verses to the pastor, and he just informed me that I didn't know how to rightly divide the word of truth and that I was in defiance of his authority as a pastor, you know, as a man of God. And so I was slapped down pretty hard. Um, and, but I, I wanted to stay in that band. If I, if I, if I didn't believe in Calvinism, I had, I couldn't go to that church. I couldn't be a member of that church. And if I couldn't be a member of the church, I couldn't be a member of the band. And so there was this emotional 
tension that I had, you know, and it sure. was pretty severe because, you know, that was, it was a great, that was a great opportunity being in that band, you know, and I was enjoying the heck out of it. Um, so, sure. uh, but eventually some family members became concerned. They thought that I had joined some kind of cult and, um, and so a few family members started talking to me about this. Um, and I said, well, I've been reading the Bible and I just don't think that this is biblical. I think the Bible actually denies all these doctrines. And so eventually I abandoned the whole thing. But that that pretty much triggered kind of a, almost a lifelong uh, study of this issue um, because I have run into this doctrine and i've run into this issue with countless fellow believers and i've seen people struggle with this issue uh pretty severely and so um i wanted to gain as much insight about this as i possibly could so i've actually off and on i mean i haven't been studying this every day for the last you know few decades but off and on for the last few decades i've been studying it quite a bit um and then I met Tim Stratton a few years ago, and uh, he and I started having conversations about this. And um, and out of those conversations, Tim said, Phil, you need to write a book. You need to write a book that crushes EDD to dust. Yeah. Exhausted divine determinism is what EDD is. You know? So um, two years later, here we are. Calvin's Desperation. <laughs> Calvin's Desperation is released. And has EDD been crushed to dust from your perspective, sir? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Right on. Um, but I also, um, I should mention that I studied philosophy and technology um, and earth sciences at the University of Iowa, the University of Colorado. Yeah. Um, and so I have a background in philosophy. And then in the 90s, um, actually late 80s, and all through the 90s into the early 2000s, I was part of a cultural apologetics organization called Rivendell. Mm -hmm. And so um, I've been a speaker, um, a debater, a seminar leader, um, conference leader in all sorts of issues pertaining to the Christian worldview and the New Age movement and atheism, uh, alternate religions, paganism. You know, so I've uh, done a lot of speaking and a lot of debating on a whole range of topics in the Christian worldview. So um, I'm grateful that the founder of Rivendell gave me the opportunity to to take part in that ministry, you know, so because it it really did prompt a lot of broad study and uh, a lot of broad investigation. But the idea of, of exhausted divine determinism has kind of been floating out there the whole time. And I returned to it several times, read several books about the subject, um, by several authors, mostly in favor of of Calvinism and so on, you know, so. Sure. Um, okay, I tried to make that brief. Hope I succeeded. <laughs> no, fair enough. And, no, and, and, and you did. I, I'm curious, and were, because you mentioned some family members that you were talking to while you were in the band, or maybe it was even the, the transition point of you know, while, while you're in the band studying Calvinism, say you know, what what is this? Were those family members that you were associating with, were they Calvinists or not so much? Okay. No. Okay. No. And I never did become a Calvinist. I mean, right. I, I never actually embraced that, that whole ethos. Um, but it was being inflicted on me. 
for lack of a better word. Sure. Um, and there was a lot of pressure. Um, what I discovered in the culture of this church, um, this house church that I had been involved in because of the band, um, there was a great deal of oppression uh, and pressure. Um, anybody who didn't agree with this Calvinist doctrine would be berated uh, and humiliated um, and insulted and embarrassed, you know, publicly, even in the church. Um, and so if you didn't fall in line, then there was big trouble in store for you. Um, and that raised all sorts of red flags as well. And that's partly what prompted some of the concerns on the family members, you know, so. Right. We just did a recent stream on real seekers. I was part of that discussion um, about cult leaders and how and why really what what it is that distinguishes cult from, you know, something else. And one of the personality traits will say that uh, all cult leaders across the board and this is outside of christianity as well like within different religions and things of that nature one thing is this over authoritarian like mindset like if you don't agree with me you're damned now now granted and 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 then to go like what you said to go as far as berating people publicly within this house church that i mean you're, you're right you, you said multiple that sends multiple red flags up well, it, it does to me too yeah go ahead yeah and and their 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 whole attitude was well this is for your own good this you know we're of course we're, we're yeah. cleansing you we're purging you of of you know of your unbiblical and unspiritual ideology you know and right um but one of the one of the things that I point out in the book, and I have a whole chapter devoted to this, mm -hmm. um, is that Calvin, John Calvin himself, would berate and insult and humiliate people if they didn't agree with his doctrine. And they would he would tell people that they were unspiritual, that they were fighting back against the Holy Spirit, that they were guilty of blasphemy, yeah. you know, if they didn't agree with with his ideology and with his doctrines. Um, and so it's, it doesn't surprise me that, and, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to paint all Calvinists the same color here. Sure. Um, because they, not all Calvinists do this, obviously, you know, so I want to be fair, but if John Calvin would stoop to measures like that, then it would, it, it doesn't surprise me. It's understandable that many of his followers would, would adopt the same approach, you know, and adopt the same attitudes and adopt the same you know, the same pattern of, of abuse really is what it is because John Calvin was very abusive to the, toward those who, who, that, that he thought, you know, that didn't, that didn't believe that his doctrines of, you know, predestination and so on, you know, were true. So right. um, I, it's sad, you know, I think it's sad, but I also, I, I want to repeat myself that this is not true of all Calvinists and I don't want to accuse all Calvinists of doing this. But right. it is, but I have experienced it and, and it is understandable given the abusive nature of John Calvin himself. You find those tendencies like, and like I said, that, that really goes with what I said just a few seconds ago about this. It's not just a Calvinist thing. This is even outside of Christianity, right? The, these, these traits, these concepts that, that define, 
I would say define people um, in a way there, there were five premises. I, I forget all of them off the top of my head. Uh, I, I know it starts out, you know, with the authoritarian model and then it kind of gets more into the psychological, you know, mind frame of a person. Um, schizophrenia was one uh, delusions. Uh, you hear a lot of cult leaders that talk about, you know, hearing a revelation from God and things of that nature. And so what's interesting is that, you know, like I said, that that is not just within Calvinism. So I don't want people taking a clip from this and say, see, they believe that all Calvinists are cult leaders. No, no, not at all. Um, but, but there are some major problems within the Calvinistic framework. This is why I asked these guys to come on to, to discuss uh, this, uh, this topic with me. Uh, before we actually dive into the, uh, the meat and potatoes of the conversation, though, I want to get Jordan in on this. Um, what, what do you think about what's being said so far? Have you had that experience, that experience with, because you, you got a lot. <laughs> I've seen them in the comment section, bro. I, I feel like there's some people that could fit that description, but I want to keep this more to a, you know, a local setting, so to say. Not we, we see all different types of people on the internet. But Jordan, do you know of anyone, and, and you ain't got to like say their name or anything like that, but have you personally encountered anyone that fits kind of the description that Phil was just uh, like describing uh, this pastor guy that that he used to attend his church and was in, in that rock band? Have you personally known people that were like that, that were in the Calvinist uh, uh, organization, I guess, or of the Calvinistic framework? Yeah. I, I wouldn't say like in my own personal life, but I, I I think, you know, one of the main things I've been doing the last four or five years or so, as I've, I've kind of talked to you before about is a, a ministry to a specific cult organization. So I have an entire different YouTube channel devoted to a group right. called the World Mission Society Church of God. And one of the main things I do is interview former members who have come out of this, just let them share their story. So then other people who are in the, the cult or coming out of it can listen and kind of kind of just help them process things and think in different ways. But, mm -hmm. you know, one thing that that will do naturally is it's going to stir up the cult members uh, to come into the comments and share their opinions. And so what, what I have noticed is that it over the past year, I've kind of gotten, I, I put some more focus on Great Light Studios into Calvinism. Mm -hmm. um, and, and one thing I've noticed, and again, I want to emphasize that this is not all I have, I have, you know, a handful of Calvinists who will come on and I'll tell them, like, I, I really appreciate the way you are engaging in this because you're, you're respectful, you're thoughtful, you're listening to what I said in the video before just spattering out your rhetoric, you're thinking about the argument and you don't agree with it, but that's fine, but you're sharing your disagreements in a thoughtful, you know, intelligent way, not relying on what most do, um, you know, fallacies to, to, uh, respond, but you know, one thing I've noticed to really, I guess, answer your question is I've actually started collecting comments from the the, the cult members because they, they'll respond in a very typical fashion, which will be, you know, ad hominem type attacks. They'll say, oh, well, this guy is just possessed by Satan. He, he's evil. And so don't listen to anything he says. Um, and, uh, you know, that just sort of that kind of just worthless useless kind of response that that 
is not thoughtful, not intelligent, not really considering what's being said in the videos. And I've noticed just a pattern between some Calvinists, and I would I would say many Calvinists, I would even maybe go as far as to say the majority of the Calvinists who comment on my videos, I've just seen this, I don't know, somewhat disturbing pattern in some sense of, of where I can literally take I can take how these cult members are responding and I can line them up and uh, this person matches that one. And, and this Calvinist matches how this cult member responded. And I can do that on multiple points. And each one kind of reflects a different philosophical fallacy, really, that they're using to respond. Um, and that's just, you know, again, not, I don't, this isn't to say Calvinism, Calvinism is a cult because this, this is going to happen no matter what, you know, in any, it could happen in any kind of uh, Christian denomination or stream, somebody who is, is coming from, from, you know, a kind of a hard line way of thinking about doctrine. And, you know, so this isn't just a Calvinism problem, but yeah, I think, I think it has been quite significant to see how many Calvinists do respond um, in that sort of fashion. Yeah, yeah, no, I I hear you out, and and I agree, I agree. Um, so let's let's jump into this then. So I got um, where do I want to go? So let, let's do this. Let's just keep it in line with with what I've got on the outline here. So we not too long ago, and Jordan, I'm not sure. I know Phil and I were talking about this before you you jumped on with us, but. Are you familiar with the video, uh, or have you seen the video that we did, uh, Jordan, with Israel uh, Trujillo on on this topic specifically, uh, Calvinism? And I think specifically, it's been a while, and and we've done many interviews since that time. Uh, so that interview specifically is a little fuzzy to me. But um, the determinism aspect, compatibilism aspect of Calvinism. I know we talked about idealism as well in that discussion. Uh, but are, are you familiar with that video? Um, no, I, okay. from just from the notes you shared with me today, but I, I haven't seen it. Okay. All right. No, f- fair enough then. Fair enough. Uh, so what, and, and where I was going with that is if you want to jump in and you have comments on the subject, like feel free to, um, so I don't want you to think that I'm trying to leave you out just by directing questions at Phil. Uh, so no, you you're good jump in on this. So I'm yeah, fine yeah. with being a spectator. No, no, fair enough. We brought you on to talk, brother. So, so do that if you if you want to engage, feel free. But okay, sure. so Phil Israel came on with us. We we you know we talked about determinism, uh, and and his ideas specifically. What stands out to me and what I remember of that show is marrying or attempting to marry uh, the concept of idealism with determinism. But there were some things that stood out to you specifically. I know that he mentioned you specifically by name in that conversation, but given the way the conversation kind of organically transpired, we really didn't get to uh, the comments in the Mere Molinism uh, Facebook group that there was a discussion that happened between you and Israel. He brought that discussion up, was going to respond to some of the things that you had said. Uh, And so if you want to, before we... Or, or we can get into that now. Uh, if you would want to give people a little bit of background to what you guys, what exactly it was that y'all were discussing, and you had mentioned that you wanted to talk about this uh, in your email with me. 
And so I'll just kind of let you lead uh, this part of the of the show if you want. And uh, and we can just kind of bounce ideas off of each other uh, about Israel and about the different concepts that he had that he brought up on the show and that he brought up on the mere Molinism Facebook group. So over to you. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, there there are two main threads of of thought that um, that I, I I would like to just kind of address a little bit. But I want to be I want to be very fair to Israel. Um, sometimes it it feels a little mean to you know to be talking about somebody who's not on the live stream with us, you know, and can't respond, you know, and and so um, I want to be very careful that I don't that I'm not unfair to Israel in any way. Um, so. If I if I make any comments that that indicate that I've misunderstood Israel in some way, then I want to offer my apology in advance, and then I would I would I would definitely want to invite um, invite him to correct me and and uh, you know to provide that feedback you know so um, I don't want this to be just one sided, um, but. Um, it would have been one-sided if, if he had gotten to that to me in the conversation because I wasn't on that conversation either, you know. So right. Um, but I um, and I'm not saying that he would have been unfair to me, you know. I, I just think that he was interested in responding to some of the things that I'd said. Mm -hmm. What one of the main things that I was addressing in that thread on mere Molinism was that God is a deity of deception. Yeah. If if God determines all things, then he is a deity of deception. <laughs> Um, and, uh, that has a lot to do with Tim Stratton's formulation of that argument, you know, and, and Tim form forms it, uh, in such that if God determines all things about humanity, then he determines all of our beliefs. If he determines all of our beliefs, he determines all of our false beliefs. If he determines all of our false beliefs, then he is a deity of deception because he routinely causes us to necessarily hold false beliefs. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, then God is not a trustworthy source of knowledge. Um, and But I took it in the direction of the moral attributes of deception instead of just the epistemological or rational attributes of, of deception. Um, and and I heard, I, I think that Israel was was trying to make a point that it's okay for God to deceive human beings because he may have reasons to do so. And, and I think, um, again, apologies to Israel if I'm misunderstanding him, okay? But I think that he would say that the Bible actually tells us that God deceives people on occasion. Um, and that if God does that, then it automatically is not... Um, a an example of moral turpitude, you know, for God to deceive people. Um, and so what I tried to say and what I began to say um, in the thread, and I, I you know, we didn't, it, it wasn't very practical for us to be able to elaborate on these things, you know, to, to much of an extent, you know, because there's limitations on a Facebook forum, you know, and so on. Um, but I argue that uh, deception is 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 evil in and of itself, and that if God deceives people, then God is committing a moral infraction. That's something that is that violates His own perfect moral nature. And so, so therefore, I argue that God does not deceive human beings. 
Um, even as an act of judgment, he does not deceive human beings. Um, because deceiving is uh, is the moral equivalent of lying as far as Scripture is concerned. There are 67 verses in the Bible that address the, uh, the idea of deception and the practice of deception. And in all 67 of those verses, deception is not presented as a morally permissible or morally favorable thing. Mm -hmm. It is always condemned as sinful and evil. Um, and uh, Jesus listed deceit as some of the evil things that come out of the heart of man. You know, he said, what goes into a man does not defile him. It's what comes out of a man that defiles him. <clears throat> and he listed deception or deceit in that list of things that he said come out of a man and that defile him. And then he said, all these evil things come out of the heart. Mm -hmm. um, and so therefore deception is evil according to Jesus Christ himself. Um, but there are tons of other verses that tell us how deception is an evil thing and that, that God actually forbids us to be deceitful. So if God forbids us to see, to be deceitful for him to be deceitful himself is obviously extremely problematic. And so um, if God is a deity of deception, then we have a big problem on our hands. Um, he is not a good God if he is a deity of deception. Um, so not only is are there rational and epistemological implications to deception on God's part, but there are also moral implications. Um, and I do discuss some of those things in the book. Um, but the other, the other side of the uh, of this whole um, subject with Israel um, is that he presented an argument um, on that live stream that you referred to. Um, and it's an what I, I would kind of describe it as an argument from order. Um, and if I understand the argument correctly, um, I think that what that the argument goes, um, libertarian free will is either ordered or it is not ordered. And if libertarian free will is not ordered, then it is not something that God would approve of or endorse because God is a God of order. So if God is a God of order, then he would disapprove of and he would condemn anything that was not ordered. Um, and Therefore, libertarian free will does not exist because God would not allow something random like that to exist because he's a God of order. You know? So I, I, th I think that that is an accurate representation of his argument. Again, if it's not, then I absolutely apologize to Israel and, and I, would, I would invite him to correct that. Um, but I think it is. Mm -hmm. um, and if that is the correct rendition of that argument, so to speak, then... Um, I would say that the fact that something is not ordered or supposedly not ordered by God does not necessarily mean that it's random. Um, and there's a lot of, of excess baggage that comes along with this concept of order, I think, in that argument. Um, I think the, the term ordered is a loaded term in that argument. Mm -hmm. I think it, I think there's, a, there's an assumption that, that if anything is ordered, it has to be ordered by God. And that's based on the assumption that God orders and determines all things. Um, but if you deny and reject the idea that God determines all things, then that some that weakens this definition of ordered. And ordered can order can come from other sources and can come from other, you know, uh, 
other considerations besides God's determining of all things. Um, so, uh, and the other, the other thing that I was thinking about during that whole conversation was that libertarian free will um, does not necessarily imply a lack of order. Um, that it, uh, it only means the order does not come from antecedent conditions. That's, that's all it means. Um, and liber libertarian free will decisions uh, can be identified as such. And therefore, if identity is the measure of order, then the proposition libertarian free will is not ordered is false. Libertarian free will can be its own example of identifiable order. Um, and it can be a repeated identifiable order because human beings can make multiple repeated libertarian free will decisions. And if that's the case, then you can identify that pattern. And if you can identify the pattern and, that, and, that, and that's the basis for calling something ordered, then libertarian free will is ordered. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I just I just think that argument is weak um, and I think the argument fails. Um, and I and I was thinking about that. I was jumping up and down saying, yeah, yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but, you know, <laughs> um, during that conversation. Uh, but um, Israel did mention me by name. Yes. Um, in the in that conversation. And I think I think that's basically the two main areas um, that I that I wanted to address. And my guess is um, I could be wrong about this, but my guess is that that Israel wanted to address my comments about deception being being evil and being something that's that God could not do since sure. God is morally perfect, you know, so. Sure. So like whenever you were interviewed by Dr. Flowers, I love what you guys did in this episode. And and it's it, it has a lot of impact on me whenever someone of the opposing side of any debate, I don't care if it's Trinitarian, Unitarian, I don't care if it's Protestant, Orthodox, I don't care if it's Calvinist, non-Calvinist, right? If the opposing side can steal man and not straw man the position, like that leads to fruition, I think. That leads to fruitful, um, and sometimes even... Uh, under, even if we disagree at the end of it, and Josh and I found this out a long time ago, that even if we disagree still at the end of the day, if you or I or, or, or Josh or whoever actually understands and can articulate back to the person what their position is, it makes for, I think it sets the stage that fruitful uh, productivity can come forth from those conversations, right? And so what I want to do in, in the first, uh, about the deception, about God not deceiving humans, because if I remember correctly, and I could be wrong on this, Phil, you would, you would probably know this better than me, but I thought that Stratton's argument dealt more with God not deceiving Christians rather than the whole of humanity, because when just whenever I was listening to you, I, I put my Calvinist hat on for a second, like you and Flower, uh, Dr. Flowers did in the episode. And the verse that came to mind was Second Thessalonians two, uh, third or Second Thessalonians two, uh, 11. 11. Yeah, yeah, 11. I've got pulled up too. Okay, okay, cool. So let me just read this, and I'm, I'm curious how you would understand this passage. Uh, yeah, let me just read it. Uh, I'm And I'm reading out of the New King James Version. 
uh, for anybody that's following along and wants to follow along. So I'll start in verse 9 uh, just to get some context. Uh, the coming of the lawless one, Paul writes, is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And what's interesting to me, it seems like there's a contrast being happened because he, he uses the word deception in accord with Satan, right? But then comes back and says, but God sends on these people a strong delusion that they should believe uh, what is a lie, uh, Paul, Paul defines as a lie. And so I'm just curious, Phil, where would you, how, if, if you were talking to Israel at this point and he brought up this passage and says, well, see, God deceives people, God sends on them delusions, and because they believe the lie, that by definition is deception. God is deceiving these people. How would you argue that from this passage? Well, I address this in the book. Um, and if one thing we could do is I could just simply share what I wrote in the book about this. Of course. Um, if you don't mind, um, um, here's what I wrote. Um, who deceived those who refused to love the truth? Was it God? If it was any more obvious that it was not, it would set our hair on fire. It was the wickedness of how Satan works that deceives those who are perishing. That's exactly what the text actually says. Wickedness is what deceives, not God. Verse 11 begins with the phrase, for this reason, meaning that the causal sequence is this. One, the lawless one comes in accordance with how Satan works. Two, the lawless one uses displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. Three, those means are the ways wickedness deceives those who are perishing. Four, they perish because they refuse to love the truth. Five, for this, for the above reason, God sends a powerful delusion, not a deception, a delusion, so that they may believe the lie that they had already chosen as a result of wicked influence to ultimately follow by refusing to love the truth. Um, we should also note, as we have elsewhere, that there's nothing in this passage to indicate that this was not a freedom-permitting circumstance. Mm -hmm. People refused to love the truth on their own libertarian choice, and those who were, who were deceived actually did this to themselves. It was not a determining necessity on God's part. Had they not refused to love the truth by their own uncoerced choice, they would not have been deceived, and therefore God would not have sent the powerful delusion. Um, Leighton and I had a conversation um, about a year ago in Denver, um, when he was here for the apologetics conference. Yeah. Um, and, uh, we, Leighton gave me a little illustration about the difference between deluding and deceiving, because I argue in the book that there's a difference between those two to delude somebody is to, is to make it impossible for them to see what is true or what is real. To deceive somebody is to is to actively cause them to believe something that is false, and those two are not the same thing. And the the uh, analogy that Leighton just spontaneously came up with that night as we were talking about it was: that suppose I'm a, a a police officer, and 
and I, I have a speed trap going. And I'm actually hiding in the bushes. I'm hiding my car in the bushes and the people can't see me. And they're seeing a speed limit sign that says speed limit 50 and they're going 60. And I'm making it so they don't know that I'm there. Mm-hmm. So what I I could be, we could say that I'm deluding the drivers because I am making it appear as though I'm not there because I'm hiding. I'm hiding the truth from them. And so if I stop them for speeding, then I haven't deceived them. I've only deluded them. They were they weren't aware that I was there. And so it's okay. I can I can stop them and I can give them a ticket. Mm-hmm. But if I were to go out to the speed limit sign and I were to, to paint over the speed limit sign so that it says speed limit 80 instead of speed limit 50, mm-hmm. and then go hide in the bushes, and then I stop people for going over the speed limit, they could say, hey, but but the sign said speed limit 80. Mm -hmm. In that case, I've actually deceived them because I caused them to believe that the speed limit was 80, whereas the true speed limit was actually 50. Mm -hmm. And so what God does not do in this passage in in 2 Thessalonians, he does not actually cause people to hold false beliefs he sends them a delusion, which makes it difficult for them to see the truth. But that was already after they had already been deceived by the wicked one. It was wickedness and it was Satan who deceived. It wasn't God. Right. Now, unless you want to say that God and Satan are the same person, then the text obviously does not tell us that God actively or causally deceives people. Um, so and, and this is something that that it's easy to miss if you don't really sit down and study the text and go through it, go through it with a fine tooth comb. This, this is something that happens time and time again with a lot of the verses that Calvinists use to try to establish the possibility that God deceives people. Um, but I, I think Stratton's argument is extremely powerful, and and I, he does he does focus on believers. He do, he says yes, God does cause believers to hold false beliefs. Um, if he is a deity of deception. Um, but it, it's also, he deceives all of humanity, whether believers or non-believers. So all, at the end of the day, God deceives all human beings because all human beings hold false beliefs. And if God determines all those false beliefs, then God is a deity of deception, you know? Yeah. Um, right. On. So I, 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 I hope that's easy to follow, you know? Um, but, you know, it's, it's very easy, very easy to conclude that God is a deity of deception by reading that passage and by reading the other passages, mm-hmm. especially the passage about Ahab going out against, um, you know, going out against uh, Gilead or uh, Ramoth. I can't remember who the who he was fighting, but um, God sends a deceiving spirit or mm-hmm. a lying spirit, mm-hmm. and the lying spirit is what deceived Ahab. And so a lot of times the Calvinist will show or will use that verse to show or that passage to show that God deceived Ahab into believing that he would be victorious if he went out to battle. Um, But it wasn't God who deceived. It was the lying spirit who deceived. And so that was something that um, that falls into the category or the the ideology of libertarian free will quite nicely because we can talk about secondary causes we can talk about things that god can use 
to accomplish his purposes, but doesn't perpetrate to accomplish his purposes. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's another example. And in, in all these cases, um, there's two things that we have to notice. First of all, God can sometimes delude people, but that's not the same as deceiving people. And secondly, what is deceiving people is actually not God, but it is a secondary agency, either the, either wickedness or Satan or a lying spirit or something like that. Um, and and so there's always this disconnect in Scripture between um, between God actually causing something and God allowing something in order to fulfill His purposes. Sure. Right on. Thank you for that, Phil. Uh, I want to bring Jordan in uh, at this point. Jordan, is there anything that you'd like to add uh, to what Phil was saying about this passage? Because I know you like going over Calvinistic proof texts, and this was one of them that I would argue uh, whenever I was a Calvinist as well. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on this passage. Yeah, I mean, as far as Second Thessalonians, that the, the passage there goes, I think the significant thing there kind of at the heart of it is that, that phrase, uh, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Mm -hmm. And so I, I just have a hard time personally. I have a hard time seeing how this with, with that standing in the midst of this text could be used as a Calvinism proof text just for that statement alone, because it hinges God's what God does uh, in this deluding influence of ascent is, is, explicitly said to be a response to this prior choice that was made, a rejection of light. And I just see what I see being said here uh, personally is, is kind of this principle that I think we see running throughout scripture. I think we see it show up in the gospel of John uh, on several occasions, but in John 12, um, like starting verse uh, 35, uh, it says, then Jesus said to them, a little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. And so it, it, Jesus is kind of setting up this principle that, hey, there are these these moments, these, uh, I think, I think it would be similar to, I think Peter references like a, the, a day of visitation. Uh, he talks about in, in Revelation, it references how Jezebel was given a space of time to repent. And so there's God gives light. He, he comes as light. He gives, uh, he, he sends out his word. And that light is like this enabling influence. Uh, I think you could almost think of it as this like the, the opposite of this deluding influence. It's like an influence of truth that compels you to, to turn. It's Isaiah 55, come, come to the waters, come to the light, uh, anyone who is thirsty. And, but Jesus then emphasizes that, hey, like this light isn't going to be here forever. This doesn't just, it, it doesn't stay like this. And in this instance, Jesus himself was the personification of that light, the word of God, the communication of God right there in their presence saying, I, I'm here. The light is here. What are you going to do with it now? And and I'm not going to be here forever, though. This light will be withdrawn. And when it's withdrawn, you will be once again in darkness if you have not responded correctly to that light while you had the light. And so if you if you take that principle into Second Thessalonians, I think it works perfectly. These people who had the truth 
they refuse to receive a love of the truth. They refuse to believe in the light and so become children of light. So what happens? Well, that light is removed. And what happens if the light's removed? Well, you're back in darkness again. You're, you're under a diluting influence. You can't see. You can't see God hiding behind the speed trap anymore like you could have before and made a decision to, to change your, your path. Yeah, and like so that. I just think, I think this is just a, a principle that, that there is light and how you respond to that light, you know, will determine what, what, what follows, but that light doesn't stay there forever. And if you stubbornly refuse and reject it over and over again, it's Proverbs where, where Proverbs one, where wisdom says, I stretched out my hand all day long, all day long. I said, come. And because you refused, because you did not listen, now calamity will overtake you. A storm, you know, the storms of calamity and destruction will come upon you. Um, and so it's just this principle. God gives light. He gives us He gives us time to repent. And this even kind of gets into this idea that, you know, oh, the Calvinists would accuse us of, of kind of saying, oh, so you're just saying people can just kind of conjure up faith out of themselves. They can just up and believe at any point whenever they want. And I would say, well, well, no, I do think there are there are these moments, these days of visitation, the, these these emphases of of God giving this light, and then we have that ability within that to respond to what God is revealing and speaking to us. But then there are those natural consequences of you know, if God removes light, you will be in darkness. It's just mm-hmm. that's just how it works. Um, and so I, I think that principle fits perfectly with with what's happening in second Thessalonians yeah and uh, and also you know verse 11 says for this reason God sends them a powerful delusion and so what is the reason well the reason is in verses 9 and 10 so it, it's it's not like like at the outset prior to all these things happening God decides that he's going to deceive people. And here's how he's going to deceive them. And he's this is what he's going to deceive them into believing. He's going to deceive them into believing the lie. And he's going to cause them to believe the lie. But that's not what this passage is teaching. Passages, this is God's response. And I, I know the Calvinists do not like the term response. God does not respond. Um, but it says in the text, for this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they might believe the lie. Now they will; they can believe the lie because they've been deluded and kept from from knowing the truth. But it was they who started the whole process. In in verses in verse ten, it says that wickedness deceives those who are perishing, and then it says they perish because they refused to love the truth. So this is a choice that human beings made. So God set the delusion because of the choice they made, and they and it was wickedness that deceived them. So, so this is this is just a million miles away from the whole concept that that this verse teaches that God deliberately and causally deceives people into believing what's false. It just 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 not there. It's not what this verse is saying. Right. And I, I would just encourage anybody who might wrestle with that verse, go to John John twelve uh, thirty five through thirty six. Go to Proverbs one verses twenty through thirty three. Uh, and there's many other places where you, you see this principle, you know, Proverbs, where it says, wisdom says, because I have called and you refused, I've stretched out my hand and no one regarded. You disdained all my counsel. You would have none of my rebuke. 
I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your terror comes, when your terror comes like a storm and your destruction comes like a whirlwind and and it goes on and, and there's there's more there on 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 both the the aspect of wisdom crying out and all that is done in that effort to to give that light and to compel though the passers-by to come and then there's there's more behind it of what follows when they don't but i would just say if somebody's wrestling with that verse go look at these passages and just ask yourself if you think that this principle might might be a good explanation of what is is happening in in second thessalonians so a couple points i'd like to make real quick um to the first thing that you said jordan this is cyprian of carthage on this passage and i think you'll like it and so i'm reading i'm reading this for for you uh but he says the cyprian of carthage quote nevertheless the profound gloom of the falling darkness has so blinded the hearts of some that they receive no light from the wholesome precepts but once turned away from the direct path of the true way they are hurried headlong and suddenly by the night an error of their sins and so to to go and and to stay with the analogy of the light and the darkness uh cyprian picks up on that very thing that you were just talking about and says that that applies to this passage as well uh another thing is that in in irenaeus uh saint irenaeus of leones he says uh he he's thinking the same thing that i am so i want to say that and even if this uh, let me make sure that this is not a participle. Uh, no, it's a verb. So, so will send. That in the Greek is actually not a future. It's a present. And now, granted, I I'm not. I haven't done like Greek exegetical study of this passage. I'm just speaking off the top, just looking at this. Um, but what's interesting is that in in it again to to this point Irenaeus agrees uh he says this speaking of antichrist too speaking of antichrist too he says clearly in the set in in second uh to the thessalonians in the second letter to the thessalonians and for this cause god shall send them the working of error that they should believe a lie that they will that they all might be judged who believe not the truth but consented to iniquity and so what is happening in verse 11 to me is not some separate event that comes later on down the road, but the sending of the strong delusion is the antichrist is this and what, what is described in verse nine, the coming of the lawless one that's in accord with the working of Satan. That's the delusion. Because it says, again, with all power, signs, lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception uh, among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason, what Jordan was just saying, uh, God sends them this strong delusion that they should believe the lie and that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure and unrighteousness and this was one of the things yeah go ahead well i was going to say and and i want to stress it's it's very important that we notice that um it says god sends the powerful delusion so that they might believe the lie we have to be careful not to conclude that the delusion is what caused them to believe the lie right it's not 
But it's very easy to, to conclude that if you read the passage in haste and don't slow down and actually read it carefully and understand it carefully. Um, the, the delusion did not cause people to believe the lie. The deception of wickedness is what caused them to believe the lie. The delusion just made it so that they would believe the lie on their own, and it didn't stop them from believing the lie. So that's extremely important for us to understand, because, again, this this passage can be used and twisted very easily. Um, and the reason that it, it's, it's so powerful and that the reason that it's so easy to understand it that way is because if you come to it from an antecedent predisposition toward toward determinism and toward the idea that God deceives people, then um, it's just it's just so easy to to draw that conclusion and it's just simply not in the text mm -hmm. um so uh and it, it could have been otherwise i i i really want to repeat the fact that that mm -hmm. there's nothing in in second thessalonians that tells us that this that these were not freedom permitting circumstances that these people refused to love the truth so it was their choice it wasn't god's choice it was their choice and God was judging him for the choice they made. So he sent them a delusion so that they would go ahead and believe the lie that they had already been deceived into believing because they refused to love the truth. Mm -hmm. So that causal connection has to be avoided. You know? Right. And right. Now, so if I could add one thing here, because I think I think Romans one would be would be amiss to not bring that into the picture here, too, because what another clear place where you see this principle show up where you have people with the knowledge of God, the knowledge of God is made manifest to them because God has shown it to them. The invisible things of him have been known from the creation of the world. And the wrath of God is revealed because even though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or were thankful. They, they became vain in their imagination. Their foolish heart was darkened. So God gave them up. He gave them up to it. He withdrew the light, the light of that knowledge that they had. He said, if you don't want it, I will take it back and you can be left to your delusions in the darkness. And so, yeah, this isn't this isn't God causing the deception or doing the deceiving. It's him giving them up over to it as a natural consequence of choices they had made prior. And so this is just another place where I think Romans 1, Proverbs 1, John 12, uh, and so many others that this, this principle, I think, is just made very clear. God doesn't just arbitrarily or randomly, or even I would say doesn't even mysteriously, the Bible doesn't leave it as a mystery as to what kind of people God allows or sends these deluding influences to. It's not a mystery. It's not like, well, God's just sovereign and he just, he chooses who are you, old man, to question. No, every single time I would say, unless you can think of one where it's not indicated why he does so, you see it laid out very clearly what takes place leading up to God then giving this deluding influence or sending them this deluding influence or withdrawing the light, giving them over to the, the destruction. It's never yep. arbitrary or, or mysterious. It's because it's specifically explicitly laid out in these, these moments is because of prior choices that were made to reject the light that had been given. And because of that rejection of light, that persistent refusal to believe, the light is taken away. 
And, and so this is a principle that I think is just so clearly repeatedly established in these places um, that again, I just think it, it, it makes a lot of sense to take these into to second Thessalonians to kind of help understand what's happening here. Yeah. God never, and I mean, never, he never does anything like this by fiat. And that's what the Calvinists would have you believe that God does this by fiat. He doesn't. God does this for specific reasons, like you said. But speaking of Romans 1, verse 29 says, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. And then he goes on to describe their depravity even more by saying they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. Hmm. So deceit, deceit is wickedness. Deceit is evil. Deceit is depravity, according to Romans 1.29. So if God deceives people, that means that God is wicked. God is evil. God is depraved. Because it is, it is, it is wicked and evil and depraved for people to deceive others. And, and that's exactly what is, you know, what's what this verse is saying. So if if God deceives people, then God is wicked, evil, and depraved. Guys, I apologize. I just got kicked out of my own studio. So I'm sorry. My internet, I'm telling you, it's crazy. And so I, what's, what's, that's even, all right. Well, if I get kicked out, y'all just keep going because this is, this is really good stuff. Um, but I do want to, I, I do want to transition here in just a second. And so I apologize. I missed what was uh, said last. But before I do, just so everybody, you know, is on the same page in our audience. Uh, I've given, you know, early church father commentary. I want to give just real quick on, on second Thessalonians, uh, a commentary that someone that specifically I have not heard of and yet. And so uh, this is interesting to me very much so because this comes from the year, uh, 1000 and I'm going to know, I know I'm going to butcher this name, but I'm going to give it a shot A Featland of in eating. That, that this is coming from him, uh, but this says this quote: "Note that the apostle did not hesitate to say that God sends to them the working of error, since then God is said to send it when He allows to send it with the devil, for God permits the devil to do this. Notice that God permits the devil to do this with a just and hidden judgment, because he acts unjust and even and uneven intention." But what follows, who have not believed in the truth, is similar to that passage of the same apostle, because though they knew God, they did not worship him as God or give him thanks, Romans one twenty one, And right after that, quote, for, the, or for that reason, God gave them over to a reprobate frame of mind that they may do those things which are not fitting. Note that they didn't already have the reprobate mind. They were given over to that state. Mm -hmm. um, as judgment. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, mm -hmm. we must note that those who were judged shall be deceived secretly by the just judgments of God, whom God himself did not cease to judge since the beginning of the sin of the rational creature. Even those who were described and led astray shall be justified at the last and open judgment of God through our Lord Jesus Christ, who having been judged most unjust, unjustly shall judge most justly and i thought that did a really good job of tying in you know what you guys were saying with romans one 
and showing that this is the consistent interpretation of the church throughout the early church in the year 200 to down to the year 1000. Um, this is the same kind of interpretation, word it different, yes, but you hear this, uh, this unanimous understanding that God is not the one causing the, uh, the deception. Rather, right. he allows and permits the devil through the Antichrist to do this. Um, but if, if, uh, do you guys have anything else that you want to add before we, uh, before we transition? Okay. So uh, I think that's, that's good. Okay. All right. So I've got a couple questions then based on, uh, prior interviews that, that Phil has done, uh, with, uh, Warren McGrew and, uh, Dr. Leighton flowers. And so the first question, and Tim and I had an interesting conversation about this. And I want to really get both of your opinions, but we'll start with Phil. So in your interview, Phil, with Warren McGrew, you mentioned specifically that you believe that Calvinism is a false gospel. So I've got a three-part question here. I'll, I'll say it all, and then uh, if you want me to repeat it, uh, you know, the different parts, then, I, then I'll be happy to. But my question is, what is the gospel? In what way do Calvinists get the gospel wrong? And do you believe this impacts their salvation status before God? Yeah, good questions. Well, um, I don't. I don't know that it would be productive for me to summarize the gospel. Um, I don't think we necessarily need to do that. Um, okay. What I point out is that a central component of the gospel is the atonement, mm -hmm. and the atonement is, is the sacrifice of Christ for the sin of man before a holy and righteous God, right? So the gospel requires a morally perfect and righteous God. I think we can all pretty much agree on that. Um, but if God determines all things, then he determines all evil, and therefore he is evil. And Gayum Binyong would push against that, and he would say, well, if God determines all things and determines our evil, then that means that God is evil. Um, and the non-determinists are simply asserting that without giving any argument to support that that conclusion. And and I and and I would I would say, of course, there's an argument to support that conclusion because if God is if His will is the sole determining cause of all things that occur in the universe then his will is a sole determining cause of sin. And if God's will is a sole determining cause of all things that occur in the universe, there are no other causes in operation in the universe. God's will is the only cause that exists in the universe. That means that our sin has no other cause other than God's will, God's determining power and will. There are no other causes involved at all. And if there are no other causes involved, then there are no other guilty parties involved. There cannot be. And so if God determines all things, he determines evil, he therefore is evil. If that's the case, then an evil God is incompatible with the true gospel because it makes the gospel pointless. If God is evil himself, how can he send his son to atone for the sin of man when God is himself sinful. 
He's he is his evil by nature if he causes all the evil that occurs in the universe. So that's how I think um, that the Calvinists get the gospel wrong. Um, and it's not that they explicitly will teach that God is evil. They don't do that, but they do explicitly teach that God determines all things. God decrees all things that, that occur, all things that come to pass are decreed by God. And you can find those in the confessions. And if that's the case, then their ideology leads to a morally imperfect God. So I'm not saying that, that Calvin's, Calvinists actually teach this explicitly. What I'm saying is that it follows it, it follows necessarily from what their ideology uh, is. Um, and uh, if, if I believe that it impacts their salvation status before God, um, I would say that that's inconclusive. Um, I, I do know, I argue in another book that I wrote, that a false gospel cannot save anyone. Um, but um, whether or not any individual Calvinist is not saved, that's, that's above my pay grade. And that's not something that I can, you know, I, um, I I think it can destroy the faith of believers. And I think it can actually uh, clobber someone's salvation. But I'm not, I, I can't, I can't point to any specific Calvinist and say, okay, that person's not saved because he's a Calvinist. That, that would sure. be completely inappropriate. Um, you mean, I, I judge uh calvinism but i don't i don't judge calvinists you know i can't can't say that that's that that's the case for any particular calvinist um i think there are uh tragic cases where calvinism has led to the loss of faith and for people of, to actually abandon their yeah. their christian faith and we've i can seen it play out recently I right mean, we've uh, seen tyler, that play out. tyler vila um right and he was a high-profile Calvinist, was absolutely convinced that he was one of the elect. Um, and uh, Derek Webb, who was the former lead singer of Cademan's Call, he was a strong Calvinist. And and his, his Calvinistic ideology is now what is actually kind of justifying the fact that he's an unbeliever. Because he said, if, if, if God determines all things and, and if God's going to, raise me from the dead like Lazarus, then that's his choice. And so if if I if I've walked away my, from my faith, then it's God's fault. It's not my fault. And if God's going to bring me back to life, then he's going to do it. And I'm waiting for him to do it. Yeah. And so that's that's where this this twisted ideology leads people. Um and Derek Webb actually uh contradicts himself 25 different ways a Sunday when he talks about this. When he had that interview with Matt Cook, you know, Matt said, what would it take for you to believe? And and Derek said, it would take a miracle. God would have to raise me to from, the, from the dead. You know, he would have to call and there was nothing I can do about it if he did that. If he wanted to do that, if he wanted me to believe, be a believer, I'd be a believer, period. But the problem is that if he's if he's dead, if he's not a believer, then he's not listening the way he says he's listening. He says, I'm open to it and I'm listening. I'm waiting for God to raise me from the dead. Well, if, if Calvinism is true, no, you're not. Right. You're not waiting for God. You're not listening for God. You're not open 
he said, I'm open to it. That those were his exact words in that in that interview with Matt Cook. He mm-hmm. said, I'm open to it. But if Calvinism is true, you're not open to it. Right. You can't be. Right. If you're open to it, Calvinism is false. So um, I think that it can be very destructive for to people's faith. And and so I think that's really kind of the more important question when it comes to salvation status before God. I think it, I think it, it can actually endanger someone's salvation mm-hmm. status before God. Yeah. So, well, and the thing that was running through my mind as I was writing that question out is you hear so many Calvinists say this same thing. And, and, and I say it like that because I used to say it. Now, I think that Spurgeon specifically meant something else by this phrase that is not t- taken into account by modern Calvinists, especially of the hyper-Calvinistic persuasion, like Manny in our, in, in our comment section. But, but regardless of that, this idea that Calvinism is the gospel, right? I know Spurgeon said that. Now, I think he means in just interacting with Spurgeon's preaching, right? And then interacting with modern Calvinists today, given those, if you compare those two things, right? And now granted, Calvinists are a dime a dozen, and they're all going to say something a little bit different. But and and I, and I won't lump everybody in the same category of the Calvinistic persuasion. Whenever you know, if they say that effect, but I'm just saying the majority of people that I've interacted with personally, and I think uh, my co-host Josh Davidson would say this as well. Um, but but it just seems like there's two different meanings there, and so that that was the the thought that ha- that I had whenever I was writing that last that last part of that question out. Uh, given, you know, given this understanding that Calvinism is the gospel, and then to say some, some say that if you're not a Calvinist, then you're not saved. Like I interviewed, and, and this is from my own personal experience, I interviewed a gentleman from Scotland by the name of Toby Emmanuel. Uh, when was this? Like two years ago on my uh the podcast we did before this, the complete center's guide. And he actually had, now this is, this is where I say people like this take Calvinism as the gospel to an extent that Spurgeon did not mean it. Right. And that is, he said that if you believe in free will, he didn't say compatibilistic free will or libertarian free will, but if you believe in free will, hard determinism at that point, then you are damned. His words, not mine. And I'm just like, that's taken this to an extreme that I don't think, uh, and, and, and you, you, you wrote the book, Calvin's desperation, Phil, but I just did, did Calvin have that understanding as well? Or was it, was it not that extreme in in your opinion? Well, Calvin, Calvin would tell people if they don't agree with his doctrines that they are actually pushing back against the Holy Spirit himself. Okay. Yeah. He would accuse them of blasphemy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, and I could, I could actually find the actual passages. Um, I have a chapter in the book called the fallacy of piety mm-hmm. and the fallacy of piety goes like this. I'm pious. I'm a believer. I believe in the Bible. I believe in the word of God. I have all these doctrines that I think are true. And if you don't 
believe the doctrines that I think are true, you're not pious. You're not a good person. You're not spiritual. You're not saved, I think, is a, is a, is a direct implication of that. Because he believes that, that people who didn't agree with his doctrines of predeter, you know, predestination and so on, doomed from the womb, you know, and the whole nine yards, that, that they, they, were, they had a reprobate mind. Um, and he would, he would constantly insult and, and act, dismiss the spiritual validity of anybody that might disagree with him. You know? yeah. So um, I, I think that, it, that you can argue that uh, a lack of belief and a lack of true discipleship um, is, is an implication of, of what Calvin actually believed. Um, he had somebody burned to the stake because they didn't accept his predestination doctrines. Yeah, that says it all right there. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but the, the other, the, the, the thing that I find so, so incredibly ironic about all this is that if you have no free will to say that, I know you're not saved if you have no free will or if, or if you believe in free will, mm-hmm. um, and I'm going to say, no, you don't believe in free. Uh, there is no free will. If I'm a Calvinist, I say, no, there's no free will. And if you believe in free will, you're not saved. Well, the problem is if there's no free will, there's no human knowledge. Yeah. Because free will is required for human knowledge to even exist in the first place. So if you don't believe in free will, then there's no way that you could know that free will doesn't exist. Because all of your thoughts are determined by antecedent conditions, to you, to borrow Tim's phrase, phraseology, if all your thoughts and beliefs are determined by antecedent conditions that cannot be otherwise, then that means that you have no way of knowing which of your beliefs are true, which of your beliefs are false, because they're not determined by things that are necessarily aimed at truth. God could be deceiving us into believing anything that we be, that we believe. So... The Calvinist belief that there's no such thing as free will could be one of the things that God is deceiving him into believing. And you and we don't know it. We don't know the difference between what God is determining us to believe is true or what he's determining us to believe is false. So if knowledge is impossible under determinism, you can't know whether somebody is saved. Right. <laughs> it's right. impossible. It's possible to know anything. There is no reasoning, only that which God determines us to think. Only that. And and this is and and I think you guys, you know, some people don't like this, but I think that you guys and I encourage y'all to keep both you and Stratton and anyone else that uses this terminology, but Ed E D D exhaustive divine determinism, because that captures the heart of what it is that Calvinists are saying whenever they say things like determinism yeah. or, or or whatever, right? And, but, and I would argue, if, if, I don't, if you don't mind me interrupting for just a second. No, go ahead. Um, I, w- I want to interject. I, would, I argue in the book that that is what Calvin is saying. Yeah. Because Calvin states categorically, the will of God is the cause of all things. And he elaborates on that theme extensively. Mm-hmm. And he says there can be no other cause anywhere that can be yeah. sought for except for God's will. And in the eternal predestination of God, he wrote that God's will and decree immutably and unchangeably, unalterably causes all things that occur. 
-hmm. all things about humanity, all things that occur in the universe. And so it, Calvin's writings are dripping with exhausted divine determinism. And, and anybody who thinks does he, that he does he not guy, you know, does he not specify within that too sin and evil, uh, even the the wicked desires of men and their acting out right. on those desires? I mean, absolutely, is, because yeah, God God determined and decreed the fall of man. God was the one who made man fall. It wasn't man's decision. Man did not rebel on his own. God caused him to rebel, according to Calvin. So the fall of man is included in this whole deterministic framework. Um, and that's why compatibilism is, is so ridiculous in my, in my view, because um, compatibilism, a lot of compatibilists will say, well, God determines all things, but man is still acting according to his desires. And so therefore man is guilty because he's acting on his desires. And so he has the free will to act on his desires. But the problem is, who determined his desires? God was the one to determine those desires in the first place. So to say that man right. is guilty because he is only acting on his desires, is that, that's actually nonsense, to be real honest with you. Because if God determines our desires, that, then he determines what we do with our desires. I mean, <laughs> he determines all and, things. And an analogy that, that I've heard some Calvinists use uh, would be... To, to compare man's condition to like a lion. A lion's instinct would be to eat meat, to choose meat over lettuce every time. A lion kills and eats meat because that's what lions do. That's how they're designed. God determined their nature to be such that they would choose meat over lettuce every time. And so they, they would, you know, Calvinists will use that comparison that as an analogy, basically, of, of total depravity, um, which I think begs the question, if that's the case, how can you how can you say sinners, sinners are any more blameworthy, any more condemnable than the lion who who hunts down and eats the gazelle? Because that's just what it, its desire is to do that instinctually. Um, how how is the reprobate who is born with a, a nature that will and can only hate God because God determined his desire to be such. How, how can you rationally logically say that the sinner is any more blameworthy, any more condemnable uh, uh, than the lion? I mean, it would be utter nonsense to see a lion do that. And then to put that lion in court and say, how could you? How could you do this? Uh, 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 you have done terrible, horrible, evil things. I mean, that would just be an absurd situation, an absurd scenario. And, and I don't, I, I just, I don't know how, how is that any less absurd for the sinner who will stand at the judgment before a God who determined what their desires would be unchangeably. They could do nothing other than hate him. That's what he wanted for them. He wanted them to hate him unchangeably. And he's going to say, bad, you know, bad boy, bad girl. I mean, it's how just, it's, just you. it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, and, and I, 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 I actually I can't see how it's not all reduced to absurdity. 
Well, and, and I, I discuss this in the book. I, I talk a lot about compatibilism and how um, the compatibilist will tell you that God's determining of all things and man's moral responsibility are compatible. Um, but but I have to point out, I pointed. we talked about this with my interview with Tim, um, that compatibilism does not rescue God's righteousness from the formula. It doesn't rescue God from being evil. All it does is it, it just makes man evil. That's what compatibilism does as far as moral responsibility is concerned. So compatibilism says God's determining of all things and man's moral responsibility are compatible. Therefore, you can't say that man is not guilty just because God determines all things. But that's not the problem. The problem is that if God determines all things, then God is guilty. And just because you just because you condemn man along with God doesn't make doesn't make God suddenly innocent. Doesn't make him a morally, you know, perfect or morally upright being. So, uh, you know, it's it, uh, but I, I saw something um, in the comments and I, I don't know if you were going to go to questions or not, Tyler, but um, I noticed one comment, one question that said, if knowledge equals planting is warranted true belief, I can see it being possible that those three criteria fulfilled, even if our thoughts, beliefs are determined, deliberation isn't needed to be warranted. And um, and I, I just I just saw that in passing. I saw it out of the corner of my eye. And I just wanted to mention real quick that I I address Plantic as warranted true belief in the book, yeah. in the chapter entitled "How Should I Know." <laughs> it's Phil. It's interesting that you bring that question up because we've got that guy on with us right now. And I'm pointing Hello. the wrong way, but <laughs> Dell, what's up, brother? Uh, so hey, Dell is another one of my co-hosts uh, that that comes on uh, sometimes uh, with us. But just real quick before I bring Dell on, I want to say to to what you guys are talking about is that this is one of the things that I really struggled with, and what ended up really leading me out. I'm not going to say it was the only thing; there were multiple things, but this was one of those things because if you guys are consistent, and I, and I mean Calvinists, not not you guys. But if you guys are consistent, then Josh and I have talked about this before, and we might have even talked about it with Jordan. But there is, in all reality, now, that might be illusory. And I know that some Calvinists will even use that terminology. It seems as though we have free will. It seems as though, you know, this, that, and the other. Uh, or, or that we're in control. I, I want to still, ma'am. It seems as though we're in control. But... It seems as though if God is exhaustively determining all things, then it seems as though, from my perspective, there is no sin because there is no rebellion. Rebellion indicates something. Rebellion has its own presuppositions that are attached to it, i.e. going against the will of God. And now I know Calvinists will say, but God has two wills, right? But ultimately, I'm talking about from an ultimate view, is that God exhaustively determines all things that come to pass. We carry out all of those things that come to pass. Therefore, we are doing exactly what God intended for us to do the entire time. There is no disobedience. There is no rebellion. We are performing exactly the way God intended we do. But Dell, I want to bring you on because Phil uh, asked your question, and if now if I get kicked off, I've got a co-host that can help out. So, 
There yeah, you go. go ahead, brother. Yeah, cool. Yeah, cool. So I, I think Phil kind of was answering my question um, already. So you you mentioned obviously I go for Elvin Plantinga's definition of knowledge as a a warranted true belief and that sort of thing. So uh, you're probably going to deny that definition, but just just for the sake of argument, let's say that definition is true. Um, I can see that all three of those criteria warrant uh, criteria for warrant and uh, having a true belief could obtain even without us, you know, with our deliberation being determined fully by God, I could see that working. Do you agree with that or? Um, I, like I said, I discussed this at length in the book. Um, And uh, the chapter that I, or the chapter that I'm addressing it in is the same chapter that I was alluding to before is called, how should I know? Um, But there's a subsection in that chapter called arrest warrant and if you start out with the with the idea that god determines all things he determines all of our thoughts beliefs and judgments all of them then that means that it's impossible to know which of our thoughts beliefs and judgments are true or false what that means is that it's impossible to know whether or not the conditions that Alvin Plantica laid out for warranted true belief actually occur. We don't know that we have an environment that is that is uh, designed, you know, and is favorable for, um, you know, f- for us to be able to hold true beliefs. I don't remember what the exact wording is of those three, you know, there are three conditions that Plantica laid out. But if if you don't know that all three of those conditions exist, then you don't know that they are yielding true knowledge. You have to know that those conditions exist. And the only way to know that those conditions exist is through rational justification. You have to be able to justify the your claim that those conditions for warranted true belief exist. If you don't know that they exist, then, then warranted true belief is not a valid theory of knowledge and it cannot deliver true authentic knowledge for human beings so rational justification is is at the is the king of the hill as far as our knowledge is concerned all theories of knowledge rely on rational justification because every theory of knowledge has to be argued for so alvin plantiga argues or tries to argue for these conditions that 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 provide justified or that that provide warranted true belief and if you're going to argue for all for all those conditions, then that means that that there's something behind warranted true belief, and that what's behind it is rational justification. But rational justification cannot exist under exhaustive divine determinism, because we cannot reason. Rationality is impossible under determinism, because we're not we're not what I love Tim Stratton's phrase. We're not driving the ship of reason. Somebody else is in the driver's seat. Right. And if somebody else is in the driver's seat, we have no idea whether or not we are reasoning properly. And if that's the case, then then our proper reasoning to support the theory of knowledge about warranted true belief or any other theory of knowledge, any theory of knowledge, we we don't know whether or not we're we're actually establishing the validity of those theories of knowledge. If we can't argue for them, and if determinism is true, we can't argue for them. So um, 
rational justification has to be the basis for all other theories of knowledge. And uh, and one of the questions that I ask in the book is, if Plantica is trying to argue for the validity of warranted true belief and that he's trying to argue for these three conditions for knowledge to occur, then he has to actually argue for them on the basis of something that is outside of warranted true belief. He can't use the theory of warrant in order to establish the validity of the theory of warrant. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I get what you're saying. Um, I guess I'll just ask a quick follow-up, if you don't mind. So, so I hear what you're saying. Yeah, um, that makes sense that you think uh, you have to have rational justification behind it in order to know that you know, or in order to know that you're warranted. And right. planting a, he's an externalist, so he just says, well, I don't care about, we don't have to know if we know, we, you know, just being warranted is enough. I have kind of my own unique idea. I, I don't think that rational justification has to stand behind it. So let me let me ask you about my take, if I'm crazy or not. But I think that we could have experiential knowledge, uh, so or knowledge by acquaintance. We're acquainted with the qualia of being warranted. So you know, so I kind I know in a, a experiential way or knowledge by acquaintance when whenever I have propositional knowledge in the form of a warranted true belief. Do, do you think that could be like a plausible alternative to requiring rational justification behind it? Or, well, um, if you if you want to base knowledge on experience, because you've experienced something supposedly firsthand, um, then you first have to ask the question: Is my experience being determined by antecedent conditions or not? Because if 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 exhaustive divine determinism is true, then everything is determined, including my experiences. So if my experiences are being determined, I don't know whether or not they are actually authentic experiences or not. It's impossible for me to know whether they're authentic or not because they're they're being determined by something that is untrustworthy. An untrustworthy antecedent condition cannot validate an experience. So if that's the case, experience cannot lead to authentic knowledge. So I don't think that that uh, that experience can solve the problem, and I don't think warranted true belief can solve the problem because because the whole theory of warrant has to has to have a foundation to it, and that foundation has to be rational. If it's not, it's simply circular, because if you if you try to support warrant by the process of warrant itself then you're involved in a hopelessly circular argument. You're, you're trying to establish warrant on the basis of warrant, and it, it, that doesn't work. You can't also, you can't establish warrant or any other theory of knowledge on the basis of experience, because if EDD is true, that experience is also determined, and you have no idea whether the, what is, it's, it's being determined by something that's trustworthy. So the only way that we can actually trust any of our deliberations or any rationality or any beliefs is for us to have libertarian free will to be able to examine the evidence and choose between a range of alternatives based on the evidence and conclude that something is true based on either analytic or empirical evidence. And in, in this case, I'm talking about analytic evidence, analytic basis for belief. And if we can't choose to deliberate in that fashion, then we still can't have anything that even remotely resembles authentic human knowledge. 
Awesome. Thank you so much. And yeah, uh, just so you guys know, I'm not a Calvinist. I am the furthest, furthest thing from it. So I, I actually agree with you guys at the end of the day, but I just wanted to kind of ask that. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. I, I really, really appreciate that question because um, I, like I said, I deal with Plantiga at length in the book, and I think it's extremely important to, to interact with Plantiga on these issues. Um, I have a ton of respect for him. Um, I, but I, but I think that, that he, that what he would want to do at the end of the day was try to rationally justify warranted true belief. And if you're going to rationally justify warrant, then there's something behind warrant that's establishing it. And if that, whatever's behind warrant can't establish it, then warrant can't be established. Gotcha. Awesome. Yeah. Over to you, Tyler. Thank you so much. Right on, right on. So I've got a question uh, for both of you, uh, Jordan and and Phil. And it it has to do, Phil, with what you were talking about, about being in the driver's seat. Uh, So we actually had Colton Carlson on not too long ago. A little little bit now. It's been a while since we talked to Colton. But uh, if anybody's interested, they can uh, find that very easily. And I will put this uh, video in that same playlist. But we have an entire playlist dedicated two topics like this specifically theological determinism or divine determinism and uh libertarian free will uh we've now at at this point if we hit the two hour mark i think we've got something like 26 28 hours uh worth of content on this subject and so i would encourage anybody that's interested uh go there because there's a lot of good stuff um there from both sides of this debate but colton and and i don't want to misrepresent him but would say to the effect, well, so what if God is determining these things, right? We are still actively, and and I hesitate to use the word participation the way Josh and I describe it, and and I really got this from Josh, uh, my other co-host, is that this seems like, because it seems as though, and this is uh, Chris Chris Date's um, explanation because Josh asked him specifically on one of these discussions that we had. He said, so it just seems as though, you know, we are um, the ones that are in ultimate control. And Chris is like, yes, I like that. It seems as though. And so Josh has come up with, I think, a, a, a genius way to describe this, but an experiential will. We experience the things that happen to us, but we are not in control of for example, the deliberation process. But someone like Colton would say, we're still in the driver's seat because we experience, it's not like God is, you know, actively, and and let's just take reasoning, for example. God's not reasoning for us. God is determining us to reason. Therefore, we are the ones reasoning. We are the ones participating in the reasoning. And we're just, you know, and, and I know Colton would nuance this, with moderate reasons, responsiveness, and and the way he defines control. But ultimately, it seems like from Josh and I's perspective, and maybe this they, they accuse us of this all the time, maybe it's because we're assuming libertarian free will instead of arguing for it. But it just seems to me like to be in the driver's seat is to be in control uh, of, of the reasoning process, of you know what we do, how we do it, this, that, and the other. And, and I think in, in one of those videos, Colton actually said the how we do it is in our control. Well, well that would negate Ed then, because right. even how we do things on mm-hmm. Ed's perspective 
is determined by God. And so I'm just curious what both of you would would say to, you know, an argumentation uh, like that, namely, you know, because we I hesitate to say actively, but because we participate in the reasoning process, it who cares if God determines it? You know, so so over to you guys um, who and whoever wants to jump on that, Jordan or Phil, uh, and then the other one can respond. Go ahead, Jordan. Okay. Well, I I didn't want to be rude. I mean, I've been I've been kind of long winded today, but um, I my my first question to Colton would be, how do you know that you are in control? How do you know that the belief that it seems to you seem to be in control is true? How do you know that any of your perception of being in control or or the belief that God is, is, is determining you to reason, how do you know that any of those things are true? Because if exhaustive divine determinism is true, God determines all of our beliefs, all of our thoughts, all of our judgments, and therefore he's going to determine all of our sensations, all of our perceptions, of what we think we're doing, but we don't know that we're doing those things. We don't even know that we don't even know if we understand those things. We don't know if those things even exist. We don't even know if guidance control exists. We don't even know if reasons responsiveness exists. We don't know any of that. It's all nothing more than word salad. Because if God determines all of our thoughts, beliefs, and judgments, and we don't know whether the God who is determining those things is trustworthy or not. And in fact, if the Calvinists actually believe that he is a, God, a deity of deception, then we know he's not trustworthy under those conditions. If that's the case, then none of the beliefs that we have are determined by a trustworthy source. If that's the case, we can't trust any of it, and we can't even trust the idea that God is determining us to reason. We don't know that. That could be one more false belief God has been has, has placed into our heads. And that's what you mean by not knowing is is mainly or, or my misunderstanding that it's not being able to trust fully, because even on that, even on Ed's model, if God determines us to trust, then then we are trusting that those things are true. Right. Um, so I, I guess that's kind of the conflict that I'm seeing. Um, but if you want to elaborate on that a little bit more, Phil, then. Well, if um, Tim has has uh, discussed this quite a bit, and I, okay. I really, I really ad admire how how he's approached this, um, and one of the ways that he's approached this, and I agree, and I, and I've been thinking about these things for years, long before I ever met Tim, I was thinking about these things. If God determines all of our thoughts and beliefs and judgments, then we are in no epistemic position to know which of those thoughts, beliefs, and judgments are true. Because God could be deceiving us into believing something that's false. And we have no idea which of the beliefs that we have are the ones that God is deceiving us, one is causing us to believe what is false, and which ones are true that God is causing us to believe that are true. He could be causing us to believe everything, and everything that he's causing us to believe could be true. The problem is we just don't know if it is or not. And, and the key phrase there is we are in no epistemic position to know which of these beliefs are true or false, which of the determined, because they are all determined. 
And if they're all determined, then all of our false beliefs are determined. Therefore, we have no idea which of the determined beliefs that we have are false. Mm -hmm. Any one of them could be false. It's like it's like if I was to list, make a list of things on a sheet of paper, a list of facts on a sheet of paper, mm -hmm. and maybe they are Denver is the capital of Colorado. Um, the United States was you know, declared its independence in 1776. It could be a whole bunch of propositions. It could be historical facts or whatever it happens to be. And then I can say to you, all right, at least one of these propositions is false. But I'm not going to tell you which one mm -hmm. or which ones. Mm -hmm. Some of them are true. A lot of them could be true. Some of them could be false. How are you going to know which ones are true and which ones are false. If all you have is that sheet of paper and if all, and if it was just me that gave you that sheet of paper, because if I already told you that some of them are false, then I'm automatically untrustworthy, mm -hmm. which means that, that, that we are being determined to believe in, in various propositions and ideas by an untrustworthy source, by a source that we know is untrustworthy because God we already know that God determines our false beliefs if he determines everything. I like that. Uh, and I don't mean to interrupt, Phil, but so Dr. Stratton, I'm, I know you're aware of this. Um, I'm just telling this for our audience sake. So Dr. Dr. Stratton actually uses what Phil just said and applies it in, a, in an analogy, in a setting of a courtroom. Right. If you have a witness on the stand, right, and he or she, uh, the prosecutor, and, and the defense attorney, they're both cross-examining this person. He's given his answers or, or her answers, you know, left, right. And, and then the final question uh, comes up, they answer it, and then they say, okay, but, but I want to I explain something to the jury. I want to explain something to the judge. I want to explain something to the prosecutor and the defense attorney. I will tell you at least one of my statements that I told you today was false. I'm not going to tell you how many, but I will tell you at least one of them was false. Yeah, I'm not going to tell you which one. I'm not going to tell you which one that. And and I think you know both of those have an effect. But because what would the, the what would the judge at that point do in that case, and what would the prosecutor specifically, especially if it's a defense uh, a defense's witness or vice versa, it works either way. But what would be the automatic response at that point? from either the prosecutor or the defense attorney judge throw out his entire testimony because we can't trust one aspect of it we can't trust any of it and i think that hit home with me so hard that i was like okay because calvinists are admitting and at least most of them will um that well i hold to at least one at least one false belief and this, it could be Christianity. This could be a general belief, but God has determined me to believe one false thing is true. I have to take into question all of it at that point. And so anyway, uh, Phil, if you'd like to respond or Jordan, if you want to, uh, to jump in on that, feel free. Well, I'm just going to say one thing and then I'll let Jordan, I, I, I don't want to, like, like I said, I want to, you know, dominate. No, the thing. no you're good. This is but much I, I just, more your area than mine, so thank <laughs> um, you. I just want to say, um, our if God determines all of our false beliefs, mm -hmm. the idea that Jesus Christ died for our sins could be a false belief that God is determining us to believe. Yeah. 
Think about that. And earlier you mentioned that um, that Calvinists will say that God has two wills. Mm -hmm. Well, if they're if they're saying that God has two wills, then they're not very good Calvinists. Because Calvin didn't say God has two wills. Calvin said God has one will. He said God's will is simple and one. And he said God's will is not at variance with itself. There is no deviation or variance in God's will. And he says that not just once. It's not buried in the footnotes of these institutes. It's 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 all over the place mm -hmm. in the institutes. And so if if that's the case, then 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 to say that God it's God's will that all come to repentance and it's God's will that not all come to repentance, those are both true under Calvinism. Because John Calvin teaches that it's God's will that not all come to repentance because he's determined some people not to believe. But the Bible says, and Calvin has to believe this because the Bible says it, that God commands all to repent. And so it's God's will that all people come to repentance because that's what he's commanded. So what I argue in the book is not that God, that, that God has two wills. Calvin did not, Calvin tried to split God's will in two and he failed. And so the only option left to him was to split God's mind into two. That's what Calvin did. Calvin said, I know that I am actually asserting two propositions that contradict each other, and I'm calling both of them true. I know that I can't resolve that conflict, but God can. Somewhere in the recesses of God's secret counsel and in his recesses, recesses of his mind that is shrouded in darkness, God can resolve a logical contradiction, whereas we can't. And if God can resolve a logical contradiction in the recesses of his mind, in his secret counsel somewhere that we don't have any access to, that means that any proposition that God declares in his word, his divine logos, its contradiction could also be true. Mm -hmm. And so it, God could tell us that Jesus rose from the dead, and God could tell us Jesus did not rise from the dead. Because if, if Calvin's right and God can resolve a logical contradiction in the recesses of his, of his divine secret counsel, then any proposition can be contradicted. And that contradiction can be true because God can resolve. He can say this, this proposition is true. This proposition is true, but they contradict each other. Mm -hmm. And so that's where our that's that's where Calvinism takes us. And if anybody, if any Calvinist wants to deny that God has only one will, the way that the Calvin affirmed, then they're not following John Calvin. And I don't know why they're calling themselves a Calvinist if that's the case. So the the the, the real Calvinist position is not to divide God's will into two, is to divide God's mind into two, is to make him a cosmic mental patient. God is schizophrenic. God can say one thing and he can say something else that contradicts it. And both of them can be true. If that's the case, all of Christian theism breaks down. Right on. Right on. Thank you for that, Phil. Uh, Jordan, I want to get your your uh, remarks. And then uh, Dale, I know Dale has uh, something that he wants to add to this as well. So Jordan, if you want to take it away and then Dale over to you after Jordan is done. and then. I know I said hour and a half. 
that was uh that was 24 minutes ago now uh but i'm having a grand a grand time and my wife has not came in here yet so so we're still good um but i do i know jordan wanted to talk about regeneration preceding faith and so i do want to hit on that before we have to bounce out of here uh but jordan over to you brother well, I, I don't think there's much I could, could add to that, but I did see Dale. Dale was wanting to pop in, so I'll, I'll give it yeah. to him. Okay. All right, Dale. Yeah, thanks, Trudy. Yeah, so I, I like a lot uh, of what Phil was saying, you know, in, in terms of the inadequacy he was, he was doing with the control condition and rationality condition there. So um, I guess I'll just, in terms of um, Colton's example, this notion of, well, we're participating in the the reasoning process or the deliberation process and that's somehow sufficient for freedom i'll, I'll just appeal to the ability condition and i look that's obviously not a categorical ability we do not have the ability to do or to refrain from reasoning in whatever way we come out to right so because we're determined to reason in that exact same process we're gonna we're determined to come out to whatever conclusion we come to and yeah, that, that's just not a categorical ability. And I would say that's not sufficient for freedom. Um, why, why would I say, you know, a cat, I know Colton will say, well, why is a categorical ability? Uh, why is that the standard? That's just begging the question. And I guess on that front, I don't have an argument, but I would just appeal to, I, I think for most people, it's a properly basic belief. It's just obvious to us or common sense that that's, you know, this, uh, one way ability it's not sufficient we have to have we have to be in control and have the ability to reason one way or not reason that way um, otherwise we're not free it's not real reasoning so, yeah. well i mean it wouldn't even be reasoning by the definition of the word would it not really no it would just be kind of <laughs> dominoes in my head producing beliefs and thoughts and stuff so and well and this is where i like right what you just said, Dell. This is where I like Josh's um, understanding and uh, articulation of this. It's an experiential will. We experience what is reasoning, but we're not the ones controlling the reasoning. Therefore, we are not reasoning by every definition of that word. Right? Yeah. We're experiencing the reasoning process, and so I think the whenever it comes to determinism. And whenever it comes to this topic in in particular, I think what's at stake and what's what are not what not what's at stake, what the center pin of this entire um, structure is, or the cornerstone, I guess I could say, um, is the control factor. Right? Do we have control or do we not? Not let's play games and and talk about you know. Well, we don't have control, but how we do things, that's still control, right? How we do things, how how things happen. If that's in our control, then that's in our control. And so it seems like it's it, and I and I'm not a fan of making things black or black and white. I think there's a lot of gray area, especially in these conversations. But I think at the same time, this question per se can be summed up in a, and I hope it's not a false dichotomy. Guys, correct me if I'm wrong on this. But a true dichotomy of that, what's at stake is, do we reason, do we actively reason, or do we just simply experience the reasoning process? You have to say, we are in control, 
or we're not in control. If we are in control, and I, I don't mean by that secondary, no, ultimate control. If we have ultimate control, then by definition, libertarian free will is true. If we don't have ultimate control, then by definition, um, determinism is true. And and this gets into, you know, I know that I had listed um, that we wanted to talk about. And I would love to do a part two with you, Phil. Uh, that I think that'd be great because I know Josh would want to talk to you as well. Uh, and I would love to. And, and David, he's sick. I know that he's very interested in some of these discussions, but, but just, I don't know if you know this or not. Uh, we've said this on past live streams before Josh and I has had this conversation for five years, six years now. Uh, so we're, we're always up to talk about it. Um, but, but with that being said, I think that that's the crux of this whole issue is the control factor. Do we have control? Do we not? And if so, then praise God for libertarian free will. I, on that point, I do want to argue uh, and, and I'll just state it as, as a matter of fact, because if anyone actually does the research or has done the research on this topic, then they'll know it to be true. If you have not done this research, then don't take what I'm about to say uh, serious or anything like that. Go do your research for yourself so you can be fully assured about what I'm getting ready to tell you. But there is not a church father that I know of that I've read that argued for strict divine determinism or exhaustive divine determinism all of them justin martyr irenaeus of leones ignatius of antioch even in some uh some of his letters uh, and, and the list goes on and on and on and it's not until augustine and and i would encourage people to go watch a video uh, all you have to do is type in david erhan uh e-r-h-a-n and dr uh david um Bradshaw from the University of Kentucky, they did a video on the essence and energies distinction with an Orthodox Christianity about this. And the whole reason now, I don't know the argument, so I won't get into the weeds of this, but the whole reason that Augustine came to this understanding of determinism to begin with is he made a fundamental flaw in not distinguishing between essence, what God is, and energies, God's actions in the world, uh, or in creation, I guess I should say, or God's actions, period. But in Orthodox Christianity, there's a fundamental distinction between the essence of God and the energies of God uh, that, that plays a role. And because Augustine did not distinguish these two, but rather combined them together and said things like, you know, God, God's activities in the world are his nature or, or are his essence is how he came to this understanding of uh, divine determinism uh, to begin with. But David Erhan, Dr. Uh, David Bradshaw, go into this a lot deeper. And also, I would recommend a conversation with uh, because they talked about it as well. Uh, and both of them had a lot to bring to the table on this. Uh, but uh, Jay Dyer and I want to say his name was reformed zoomer or hold on let me let me look this up real quick um but that was a a, a really good conversation uh between uh those two let me see real quick uh jay dyer and redeemed zoomer excuse me uh so if you just type in those two david airhand dr david bradshaw and jay dyer and uh redeemed zoomer 
they both go further into this concept of uh, Augustine's uh, fallacy, I guess you could call it. But anyway, uh, let's uh, let's transition into does regeneration precede faith? Does faith precede regeneration? Jordan, I'll let you lead uh, this part of the segment, uh, this segment of the episode, I should say. And then we will take audience questions um, again. Since we are at the two-hour mark, what we'll do is we will for sure take super chats. Uh, I cannot guarantee because we've we've already got a lot of questions, <clears throat> but I cannot guarantee that we will get to all of the questions. But if you send us a super chat, we will for sure get to your questions uh, and prioritize them over the rest. Uh, if not, we may or may not get to your questions. So, Jordan. It's all on you, brother. You've been quiet. Now's your time to step up to the plate. Enjoy. All right. Well, <laughs> Go ahead. Well, I'll, I'll try to uh, I'll try to keep this this short. Um, I wanted to just kind of start out with a with a couple quotes um, that that I'll just share and and see how this strikes you guys. So, to say that God must regenerate the sinner first in order for them to be able to come to Christ is like saying a doctor needs to first rid his patient of cancer before that patient will be able to receive the treatment. Um, and to say that God must first regenerate the sinner before they can seek Christ for help or trust in him for salvation is like saying God needed to first restore the sight of the blind man before they were able to cry out to Jesus for help. And so I, to me, putting it that way just kind of summarizes what in my mind is the absurd backwardness of, of regeneration precedes faith. And this is, this to me is one of the, you know, well, not just to me, but to even, you know, those like R.C. Sproul will say that the essence of reformed theology can be summed up in this phrase, regeneration precedes faith. And so, you know, whether or not regeneration does precede faith is no small matter. And whether or not the Bible supports this concept is no small matter. Um, and so, you know, to me, to kind of extrapolate from those quotes and, and, and what I see happening in this concept. God must first, according to Calvinism, because we are dead in sin, he must first make the soul alive. Uh, and, and different Calvinists might use different terminology. I've been, you know, as I've kind of presented certain arguments in this area, I've had Calvinists kind of push back even against using the terminology of life, uh, which, which was a bit odd to me. Um, but God first must make the soul alive so that then that person is able to come to Jesus. So <clears throat> what this does in my mind, this really gets back to, um, you know, our, our last discussion, actually, when I, I discuss what I call my, uh, you know, a critical error in Calvinism, really what I, is my primary issue. It's, it's what Calvinism does with Christology. I think it regeneration precedes faith basically makes life something separate and distinct from Christ himself. Now, this is where Calvinists would have, you know, and, and what many of them will do is they'll, they'll create, you know, 
different versions, different forms of life. So there's regeneration life, and then there's some would call it eternal life. Um, and so there's that regeneration life we get when God, you know, raises us from spiritual deadness to spiritual life, and that enables us to come to Christ. Um, but Jesus is the life. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know how much time we'll have here, but if we, you know, John 6 is just chock full of Jesus making this, this case that life is entirely dependent. This thing, life, spiritual life is dependent on consuming him. Um, and I think we we see this in the way God made mankind. We must eat food to get the energy, the sustenance, the life that food gives to us. We don't get life in order to eat food, but we get life from the food that we consume. And, and so in the same way, Jesus presents himself as the bread of life, that image-bearing humanity must partake in. We must consume him. We must eat him. We must have a, a personal, intimate, relational connection, closeness, interaction with the Son of God and partake of him in a personal way. And that becomes our life. And so I think when the Calvinist says that first regeneration precedes faith, it's separates life from Christ as if life is something that is had independent from Christ or before Christ. We don't, we aren't made spiritually alive because we become connected to the one who himself is the resurrection and the life. No, we first are made alive so that then we can subsequently become connected to Christ. And so it's, it's just, if you think of it on this timeline and I don't, you know, the question I ask Calvinists at this point is what, what is that life? Because Jesus claimed to himself be life. He, he himself is the way, the truth, the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Um, and so what is this, what is this regeneration life that we are somehow experiencing, uh, partaking in? While we have not yet come, we have not yet believed in, we have not yet trusted in uh, the one who himself is life. Um, and so just, you know, there's, there's several passages in John six. Um, but I would just go to, if we go to John six 32, uh, Jesus then said to them, uh, and I don't, I don't know if you want to pull this on, on screen real quick, Tyler, Jordan, um, if you want to, my, since would it my be... computer's lagging, I can't, if you want to go ahead. Okay. Let, let me just do that real quick. It'll probably be worth it. Yeah, and then once you pull it up, I'll add it. Okay, so John 6.32. Whoops, sorry. There you go. Let me see if I can zoom in a bit. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, uh, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. So this bread, that is Christ himself, is what gives life to the world. Uh, then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Um, and then if we jump down to John 6, 50, this is the bread that comes down out of heaven so that anyone may eat from it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If 
if anyone eats from this bread, he will live forever. And so, you know, I don't want to read too much into that, but I think here we're seeing, and, and there's, you know, so many other explicit, uh, what might be categorized as proof texts that I think give a, a completely different order than uh, regeneration preceding faith. But I think in this what you know, what I'm seeing is a bit of an order showing up. This, this bread that comes down of heaven must be eaten um, in order to have uh, life. If you eat this bread, the result is life, living forever. Uh, you don't get some kind of, you know, forever life that enables you to then eat the bread, but that bread itself, consuming the bread, is the life. Um, and the bread which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And so this last section here in John 6, uh, John 6, 53. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He didn't say, unless you unless you first consume me, eat me, partake in me. You have some life. You're, you, you'll, you, you still have to get regenerative life before this interaction takes place of you consuming me personally. Yeah. He says, no, unless you first eat Jesus, you have precisely no life, not regenerative life, not uh, eternal life, no life. And so that's where, again, I would say, what is this? Regeneration precedes faith. What regeneration, this regenerative life, God giving life to the soul, what, what is it? Because this is something that takes place before the act of us eating, consuming Christ. And so if we get no life until till this point here, then what is this life over here? It's something separate than our, our communion uh, uh, with Christ himself. Uh, and then 54, the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drink my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living father sent me, and this this is kind of, I think this this statement here kind of pops out to me. Just as the living father sent me and I live because of the father, the one who eats me, he also will live because of me. So what, what makes us live? Well, we live because we have consumed the one who is life. We have consumed the living bread. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so there's so much more in this presentation that I will, I'll, I'll stop here because I, I know we're, we're running long, but I, I wanted to just kind of put this out here um, and and see your guys' thoughts on this. I don't see a whole lot of people emphasizing this point um, a, a, a ton. I have seen this, you know, I in a debate with um, with Leighton Flowers, and I cannot remember the the pastor's name, but Leighton kind of pushed on a, a similar point here. Uh, and this, this was a, a debate with a Calvinist between uh, Dr. Flowers, but you know, th this kind of point came up where the, the question was, you know, something along these lines of what, what, 
what is this life? If Jesus says we have no life until we consume him, then how are, how are we getting regenerative life before, you know, we're getting this regenerative regeneration life in order to come to Christ. But how is that not flipping this whole schema of things um, upside down? How is this not inverting it? Um, so what's, what's your guys' thoughts on that? So Jordan, I know, I know you strategically did this because you're trying to be deceptive, right? But I noticed that you strategically skipped over John 6, 44, because before you even eat the bread, that is Jesus, you have to come to him first. And John 6, 44, Jesus says that, of course, no one can come to me because there's something you're talking about order. There's something that has to happen before you even come to Jesus before you can even eat him and that you have to be given or, or the father has to draw you. Excuse me. Let me use the words of the Bible. Don't want to misquote him, but God has to draw you first. Then you come to Jesus and that drawings, the regeneration, right? Then you eat and Is then it though? sanctified. No. Oh, hold on. Yeah, 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 <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, right. So here's the thing. And, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong guys, but I think that's how the Calvinist response would, would somewhat go. That's the way I oh, would yeah. have argued it yeah. as the, as a Calvinist, but, you're right, Jordan, you nailed it. Because if drawing then is regeneration, Jesus says six chapters later that he's going to draw all men to himself, all of them, right? And now what Calvinists will do, they can still keep that, that idea that regeneration and drawing are the same thing, right? But what they will do is they will say the the, the famous or infamous uh, understanding of the word all or pos in the Greek, well, in this scenario, all doesn't necessarily mean all. It just refers to all of the elect, right? It means so, all when we say it means all, and it doesn't mean all when we don't say it means all. That's when right. It doesn't mean all. Yeah. That's right. So I just, I, I didn't want to like jump in there, yeah. uh, but but Phil, go ahead. Uh, I just wanted to give that that Calvinist stool man. Yeah. So um, go ahead. Yeah, I, I would. Uh, I, I love what you said, Jordan. It's it's uh, and and by the way, to eat Jesus flesh and drink his blood is a metaphor for believing in the book mm -hmm. of John, in John chapter six. And and believing then leads to life. And so believing, having faith has to precede life. Otherwise, what Jesus was saying was rambling quackery. So um, but I want to I want to give you a quote from a theologian on this on this subject of whether faith precedes regeneration or the other way around. The quote is this, it may be thought that the evangelist, he's talking about John in chapter one, reverses the natural order by making a regeneration to precede faith. Whereas on the contrary, it is an effect of faith and therefore ought to be placed later. So let me read that again. It may be thought that the evangelist reverses the natural order by making regeneration to precede faith, whereas, on the contrary, it is an effect of faith. In other words, regeneration is an effect of faith and therefore ought mm -hmm. to be placed later. The theologian that yeah. made that statement was John Calvin. Hmm. That's interesting. 
So my message to all Calvinists everywhere would say, if you think that regeneration precedes faith, then you're disagreeing with your hero, John Calvin, because he denies that. He contradicts that statement. According to John Calvin, regeneration is an effective faith and therefore must be placed after faith. So um, there, I, I go through lots and lots of verses in the Bible um, where when Jesus talks about having life and where the actual author of the book of John speaks of having life, that you may believe that you might have life in his name. The order is always unmistakable. Belief always mm -hmm. leads to having life every single time. But the other thing that that um, that we need to consider um, is is a little little landmine that is embedded in the book of Romans, chapter four. Um, and in that chapter, um, I'm gonna let me pull it up here so I can get the right the right reading of it. Um, Actually, let me let me look for it in the regular text here. So, um. and I, Tyler, I do want to get to uh, uh, forty-four here in a minute. I think it's like yeah. I don't I don't want to I don't don't want to dismiss that one because I think that's that is so, that's where my mind went as I as I went from you know one section in the text to the next. I was like, oh, <laughs> you know what? Yeah. But I mean, it, it's because we have about thirty minutes to do this, and we're not going to exegete John six. But right. but that would no, be they, the immediate that would be the immediate response. So the only did you see how he conveniently jumped over? You're right. Four, so so, yeah. so I, only, I would like. There's some things I want to say about that here in a minute. But okay. sure, sure. The only reason I said that is because so I've got a signed copy of the Potter's uh, the uh, Potter's Freedom from uh, James White, and whenever he signed that. Like at the bottom, he wrote John six forty four, and so that came to mind whenever you were saying that, and I was like, oh, I've got to throw that in there. So anyway, yeah. by the way, I'm sell I'm selling that copy to the highest bidder that if anybody wants a signed copy of the Potter's Freedom by Dr. James White. Uh, the bidding is starting at three thousand dollars. So just <laughs> is interested. That's in fair. That's yeah, fair. yeah, yeah, yeah. Go go ahead. Phil. I'll consider buying it from you. Okay, yeah. fair enough. Yeah. Um, so, and I'll try to make this brief, but Romans 4, 5 says, however, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Now, my first question would be, is there any Calvinist anywhere who would say that the ungodly and the regenerate can be the same person? In other words, can can someone who is regenerated be ungodly? And does someone who is ungodly be regenerated? And and I, I, I can't conceive of any possible way that the Calvinists would ever agree that someone who is who is regenerated is still ungodly. Hmm. And some of the translations will translate that word hmm. wicked. The God who justifies the mm -hmm. wicked, mm -hmm. God who justifies the ungodly. Now, what triggers justification according to the Bible? 
It's faith. Faith triggers justification. If God justifies the ungodly and the ungodly and the unregenerate are the same class of people, then God justifies the unregenerate. And I don't know anyone who's ever pointed that out before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's this, I've never, there's I've this, never thought of it in those. Yeah, there's this little jewel in, in Romans 4 or 5. God justifies the ungodly. And I made a comment in the book that said that's it, it's scandalous that God would justify the ungodly. That God would say to the ungodly, the unregenerate, the depraved, the wicked, and say, you are not guilty of sin. That's mm -hmm. that's a scandal as far as so the it, whole it, it kinda, world religions are concerned. That's it gets that's into where you kind of have these people with these contradictory uh, identities where they're existing, you know, and this gets into unconditional election as well, because you have these people who quote unquote belong to God as his sheep, but yet, you know, you'll have places in Romans eight and Galatians that'll say things like, you know, those who do not have the spirit of Christ do not belong to him. Uh, Galatians will say those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So you have this category of people who are, they belong to God while they belong to Christ as a sheep simultaneously while they are, are also identified as not belonging to him. They're according to Ephesians 2, belonging to Christ chosen, elected before the foundation of the world, God's special people. Um, simultaneously chosen and separate from Christ without God and without hope. And so you have people with these contradictory identities where they're simultaneously existing as belonging to God, but yet also being identified as those who are, you know, have this special unique privilege as being chosen before the foundation of the world, uh, which, which would get into this whole other conversation of are, are the elect of Calvinism ever really in any real danger of, of hell, are they ever really, could you, could you rationally, logically say that they were lost in any meaningful sense, um, that they were without hope or without God or separated from Christ? Could you say that of the elect in any meaningful sense? And, and I don't think you could. And, and to your verse in, and was that Romans four? Phil? Romans five. Yeah. Romans five. So, um, Romans four five. Romans okay. So in Romans five one and two, Paul says this. He says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So how how do we gain access? To God's grace? How do we get through the door into the realm in which we, we possess the grace of God? Well, it's through faith. This, this regeneration precedes faith, though, would say, no, the grace of God, well, I mean, it comes at regeneration. That's that's the, the, the you know, a very significant moment of God dispensing his, his grace to the lost sinner. But even further than that, obviously, back uh, before the foundation of the world, what what wonderful grace it was that God gave to to His elect that He He chose them 
before the foundation of the world, God's grace has really, in a sense, been connected to the elect from before the foundation of the world. Um, but, but you know, in this context of regeneration precedes faith, the grace of regeneration is given to the elect in order to then have faith. Well, Paul, Paul says, no, that, that grace is behind the door of faith, if you will. If you want to get access to this grace that God has available in the gospel in Christ, the doorway that you access that through is faith. And, and so I think that would just go quite well along with, with the verse in, in Romans 4 that you just read. And let, and let me just share something real quickly, and I'll try to do this as quick as I can. Um, yeah. Another passage from a theologian is, if I'm to preach faith in Christ to a man who is regenerated, then the man being regenerated is saved already. And it is an unnecessary and ridiculous thing for me to preach Christ to him and bid him to believe mm -hmm. in order to be saved when he is saved already being regenerate. But you will tell me that I ought to preach it only to those who repent of their sins. Very well. But since true repentance of sin is the work of the Spirit, and any man who has repentance is most certainly saved, because evangelical repentance can never exist in an unrenewed soul. Where there is repentance, there is faith already, for they never can be separated. So then I am only to preach faith to those who have it. Absurd, indeed. It is not... Is not this waiting until the man is cured and then bringing him to the medicine? Is this, this is preaching Christ to the righteous and not to sinners. That mm -hmm. is a quote from Charles Spurgeon, who hmm. was an, who was a hardcore Calvinist. Mm -hmm. and can, even can you Charles read that part? Can you read that part again about the, the sickness preaching? Because that, that sounds awfully familiar to the quote that I read earlier. Right. It says, so then I am I, I am only to preach faith to those who have it. Absurd indeed. Is not this waiting till the man is cured and then bringing him the medicine? This is preaching Christ to the righteous and not to sinners. Hmm. So it's, it's this idea that, that first God, the father must, must cure the sinner of their deadness to, in sin. He must give them this, this, this cure of regeneration life so that then they are able to come to the one who is, is, is Christ himself, not the cure. So you're getting the cure in order to come to the cure. Right. Which seems, which seems a bit uh, backwards or problematic um, at best. Right. And in the book of Acts, um, Acts uh, 11 Verse 18, um, it says, so then even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Mm -hmm. But if, if regeneration precedes faith, then it would be life that leads to repentance. But it does, it's not and that this, way. Yeah. Yeah. In the text, it and says. this is where. Sorry, go ahead. I'll finish. <laughs> I was just going to say, in the text, it says God has granted repentance that leads to life. Yeah, that's all I was going to say. So go ahead. Yeah. And so at this at this point, I would just say that the Calvinists would have to somehow do what seems to be typically done in these cases when they're, they're kind of confronted with what, at least on the surface, seems to be a pretty clear contradiction to their system 
is that they would have to create again different versions of life and so that life fill that you just referenced in acts they would have to make that something separate and distinct from whatever regeneration life is um and and i'm not all too sure exactly how how they would do that um well i would i would ask a simple question where in scripture does is is where does the bible ever differentiate between two kinds of life right and if if the bible never differentiates between two kinds of life then what is the basis for the calvinist trying to differentiate between two kinds of life isn't that isn't that just basically taking your antecedent ideology and imposing it on scripture isn't that begging the question yeah um we have Colossians 3, 4, where Paul says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And then John 14, 6, which I've already referenced, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, John 1, 4, in him, Christ, in Jesus, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Where Where is life? This this life that we need, it's in him. It's no, it's it's not said to be anywhere else. It's not said to be both in him and out of him. No, it's within this connected union with the son of God. That is where life, This that's the sphere in which life is experienced. Um, yep. John 11, 25. I, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, John eleven twenty five. where again, I am the resurrection and the life. Life is not something separate and distinct from Christ as if God God gives you gives you life and then gives you Jesus. No, God gives you Jesus. You get Jesus, and in Him you get everything else, including life. Um, and then then uh, the last one here is First John five twelve. Whoever has the Son has life. Well, why would that be? Well, because the Son is life. You, do you want life? Go to the Son because He is He is Himself the resurrection and the life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So this this sinner, this uh, person who has just been regenerated, you know, and again, the order is made very. It's given a lot of prominence and importance here. The ordo salutis that this regeneration must precede the coming to Christ. You have to first be made alive in order to come to and believe. So you you coming near to the Son of God, you coming near to the source of life, you have to get life first to do that. So if if John tells us that whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life, then are we to say then that this person who has just been regenerated, uh, but they have not come, you know, that regeneration precedes faith. Do they have Christ at this point? Is this regeneration life their experience of having Christ that then leads them to be enabled to come to Christ? So it, it, it's it's it just kind of becomes a bit of, of a confusing scenario here, um, where again, I, I, it just brings me back to asking, what, what is this life? Is this life, this regeneration life, is it Christ himself? Are we somehow getting Christ in some 
some experience, some form of Christ is, 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 you know, we are partaking of him in this act of regeneration. And then that enables us to come to him, to believe in him. Um, it just seems, it seems a bit absurd. Um, and as you said, if the Bible gives us no reason to to believe that that life is something that is separated into to various kinds or categories, then why why would we separate it in that way? Especially since the explicit text, as as you've read a few, and there are so many more, regeneration precedes faith is one of those that I you just there are not very good proof texts for that that doctrine. I think it's one of the most uh, 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 difficult aspects of Calvinism to try to argue for, because it's not only is, is it lacking, severely lacking any just clear, explicit text that will say that order. Not only that, but it has the, the scriptures are full, both Old and New Testament of, of texts that do give a clear, explicit order. And they will say things like, you know, you refuse to come to me so that you may have life. Uh, Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. Um, Isaiah 55, come to the waters, uh, come and listen. It, uh, Isaiah 55 will say, hear that your soul may live. So what happens first there? You first hear so that then your soul is made alive. Well, that 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 just completely revert, uh, inverts regeneration precedes faith. And R.C. Sproul, who will emphasize that it's, you know, the soul being made alive at regeneration. Well, in order in, in the system of Calvinism for a, a an unregenerate person who's dead in sin, for them to be able to hear in the first place requires that first they're made alive. You can't hear. Uh, uh, you can't respond. You can't come to the waters as uh, Isaiah 55 compels and beckons us to do. You cannot do that unless you're first, your soul is made alive to be made able to do so. And so why is it that Isaiah 55 is compelling us to first come if we want to be made alive? Well, there's an onus on us to do something, to respond, to come, to, to eat the bread and drink the wine without money and without cost, which, you know, I think pretty good reason to believe that perhaps Jesus and John six had some of these, these things in his mind uh, uh, as he was, as he was kind of giving this, this discourse about being the bread of life and, and kind of making that same, you know, giving that same offer to, to come to him. Yeah. Let me, let me just read a real quick excerpt. This is one's for free. Um, in the final analysis, the reason regeneration must precede faith for the Calvinist is that the unregenerate are supposedly unable to place their faith in Christ due to the fact that they're dead. Does that mean that after they come to life, they are suddenly able to place their faith in Christ? If it doesn't mean that, why does their inability to place their faith in Christ while they're still dead matter? If they're still unable to place their faith in Christ even after they've been resuscitated, What's the point of insisting that they cannot do so beforehand? So the, uh, so the regenerated person must be able to place their faith in Christ because that's what regeneration supposedly enables them to do, Calvinism 101. But we are talking about a deterministic model here where the will of God is the only cause of all things, which must therefore include people placing their faith in Christ. So what has happened to this newly acquired ability 
to exercise that faith. It doesn't exist. You don't do things you are causally determined to do because you're able to do them. You do them because you're causally determined to do them. Under Calvinism, people don't place their faith in Christ because they're able to. They do it because God programs them to. The only ability that matters here is God's, not man's. If lack of ability was the issue that was stopping the zombies from putting their faith in Christ, but human ability doesn't exist under determinism, why can't God cause it to determine them to place their faith in Christ before they come back to life? Their ability doesn't mm -hmm. have anything to do with it under determinism. That means God can cause people to do things in any order under the sun, and therefore every argument that Calvinist presents about what order things have to occur in on the basis of ability is a model of absurdity. Mm -hmm. All right. Awesome. I, I just want to step in because I have a bit of a question. So I, I totally agree with your guys' takes, uh, biblically speaking and stuff like that. I think you guys have given great answers that faith and repentance and stuff, these are preconditions for regeneration. So I'm not going to argue you guys on that front, but I did want to kind of raise a metaphysic, possible metaphysical or philosophical uh, objection that I've heard that, and I tried to couch it in terms that maybe a Calvinist might raise. So they might say, okay, why, the question is why these preconditions? Is it just arbitrary? Like why, why do we need faith and repentance in order to be regenerated? It is, is it, are these arbitrary conditions commanded by God or if they're necessary in some way, doesn't that kind of diminish God's sovereignty in some way? Um, yeah, like how, how would you guys kind of respond to that objection if a Calvinist raised that? Well, well, I don't know that I'd have a ton of thoughts, so I'll pass this off to Phil pretty quick. But, but I would say my, my initial thoughts to that would just be that faith, faith and trust are fundamental elements of, of a relationship, of a relational dynamic existing. And so, so the importance to me is that, that that faith and trust is what I like. I use the terminology of, of connection because when I think of Christianity, I, I, think of, I think of it really coming down to, in its essence, it's about us being close to our creator. We are, we are made, you know, there's this marriage, uh, 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 analogy used of, of the church and believers, we are joined to Christ. We are made one with him as, as a husband is made one with his wife. And so, so, you know, life is, is something that is experienced through an intimate relational, you know, a, a living and acting knowing of, of Jesus Christ, of knowing him in a personal, intimate way, that that knowledge that is something different than you know doctrinal uh, uh, you know assertions. It's 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 as my relationship with with my wife, and so I don't know if that exactly answers your question, but I think to me at least one element of why faith and trust are important and why life is is hinged on our trusting uh it, it, it's kind of like the, the there's a proverb that talks about how can two how can two walk together unless they be in agreement and so it's this agreement that allows this coming coming together in an intimate way so that we can partake of everything that god is everything that christ is for us um uh as a as a 
branches engrafted, joined, connected intimately with with the vine. So we must be with Christ. And I think that that comes, you know, that again, that's a analogy, I think, for the, this relational intimacy that happens between the believer and and God and their union um, with each other. And, and so, again, don't don't know exactly if that answers your question, but that would be uh, kind of my initial thoughts there. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Perfect. And, and Phil, what's, what's your take is, you know, is our God's preconditions just an arbitrary thing on his part? It could have been other conditions or if they're necessary in the way that kind of Jordan was saying, doesn't that limit God's sovereignty? The only way he can have, a, he can regenerate us is by the fulfillment of these preconditions. Well, um, I mean, if, if God has stated categorically that faith is required in order for us to be justified and saved, um, then it automatically isn't going to diminish, diminish God's sovereignty because God's sovereignty was was what inspired him to set up those conditions in the first place. Um, but I, I think there's a there's a, a fundamental uh, erroneous definition of sovereignty that you find in the yeah. Calvinist within within the orbit of Calvinism. Um, and that is that under, under Calvinism, God's sovereignty is his causality over all things, over all the universe. And I think that's a faulty definition of sovereignty, because if God does not cause any effect that occurs in the universe, then he is no longer sovereign and the Calvinist is going to fall apart. John Calvin falls apart. You know, John Calvin had this emotional dependence on God's sovereignty as defined as though it was the the cause of all things that occur in the universe. And if anything occurred that God didn't cause, then it would move it, the world would move at random. And there would be something outside of God's causal control. And that would that made John Calvin lose his mind. It made him it made him have a nervous breakdown, you know. God has to be in causal control of everything in order to be sovereign. But if you reject that definition of sovereignty and accept the, the better definition, which is the biblical definition of sovereignty, and that is that his lordship over all of creation and his lordship even over free creatures. You know, A.W. Tozer said that, that man has free will because God is sovereign, that God in his sovereignty chose to endow man with libertarian free will, and that a God who was not sovereign would be afraid to do that because he's too insecure. Um, and I contend in the book several times that, that Calvin's God is too insecure, that he has to be a cosmic bully, and, and he has to cause everything to occur in order to get anything done. I'm a whole lot more impressed with a God who can get everything that he wants to get done, done, even though man has libertarian freedom. I mean, that impresses me for a God to just control all things. And the only way that he can get his will accomplished is to control everything and to cause everything himself and to not allow any other causal agency in the universe. That doesn't impress me. That's not a God worth worshiping in my, in my view. I would rather worship a God who can get anything that he wants to get done, even though man still has libertarian free will. Whew, that's, that's pretty amazing that he can do that. Mm -hmm. That's, that that astounds me. So I think this this idea that that if 
if there are preconditions that depend on man in order to secure individual salvation, that that, that somehow diminishes God's sovereignty, um, I, I think that's a little bit, I think that's kind of misguided. Um, because uh, the Calvinists will tell you that faith is only given to those that God is predetermined to save, and that those who God is not predetermined to save, he will not give the gift of faith to. And I contend that faith is a human faculty that God has given to everyone, just like thought, imagination, and and memory. Uh, all these all these things are human faculties that all human beings possess, and faith is no different. Um, faith is we have if we're non-believers, we still have faith in airline pilots. We still have faith in doctors. We we place our faith in our spouses. Um, we we trust those that that are close to us, and we have faith in them that they aren't going to betray us. So um, faith is something that's built in to all human beings, and it's, it is a gift of God, but he gives it to everybody. And so the fact that faith is a precondition for justification, um, I think is pretty much the natural way that God would do things. It's, it's exactly what I would expect of God if I were mm -hmm. to conceive of, of this entire if of, of this entire scenario, you know, on my own. So I don't know if that helps or not, but. Yeah, um, perfect. No, uh, and, between you and Jordan, that was the perfect answer. Both of you guys combined gave uh, a great answer for both of those horns. So thank you guys. Yeah. I, I, I was just going to, I was just going to reemphasize with that, that I think had to be, you know, is, is, does that limit God that this precondition of faith must be met? I think it, it, it's sort of, bringing in Calvinistic assumptions into the question, like, like Phil already talked about, you're kind of assuming a specific definition and understanding of what God's sovereignty means and what that must look like um, in order to really, um, if I'm understanding the question correctly, to, to be motivated to ask that question in the first place. Um, and so I think if you remove that definition and, and replace it with a more accurate one that does not entail EDD, then, then I think the question's uh, potency kind of diminishes. Um, and I would also say that I, I wouldn't even, I personally wouldn't put it as God had to do it that way. Like God was limited that unless we believed he was not capable of, of you know, making us alive in this instance. I don't know exactly. I, I, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't make a dogmatic argument at this point um, in this area, but I would just say perhaps God could have, you know, to use somewhat maybe pejorative language, zapped us with, with something called life and just made us alive so that we would want to come to him necessarily. Perhaps he could have done it that way, but I think it's a reflection of who God is. God's, God's character, as Phil was just you know, kind of ending with God's character, who he is, is, is revealed in that he did choose to do it this way. He wanted it to be an agreement between two uh, uh, parties. Um, and I think, you know, arguments have been made uh, about what happens to the concept of, of love um, if, if this isn't, you know, the scenario that there is this agreement where where two parties uh, individually become become one. And so, so, so yeah, just I just wanted to kind of emphasize that I don't. That, that's why it's called the new covenant. It's a covenant between man and God. And 
Um, right. But, I, but but the Calvinists will tell you that if 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 we have to place our faith in Christ by a libertarian free will decision in order to be saved, then that means our salvation depends on us. And it means that we're cooperating with God. And so the idea that mm -hmm. that's called synergism, the idea that that man and God work together and that man makes a part makes some kind of contribution to his salvation. And and I think that's extremely faulty um, because mm -hmm. I draw the analogy in the book of of somebody who is out at sea and they're drowning and the Coast Guard comes along and throws them a rope and they grab the rope or they grab the life preserver and they're pulled to safety. And then they go ashore and they're interviewed by the press, you know, and the police and the reporters are all around, you know, the, you know, because they're covering this, this, this gallant rescue. And, and uh, the person who is saved out of the, out of, from drowning says to the press, well, you know, I'm just so proud of myself. I saved myself because I grabbed that life preserver and therefore I can take all the credit for all of the, you know, of, of the fact that I'm alive right now. I, I can take all the credit for this. And it was, I was cooperating with the yeah. Coast Guard. Well, it was the Coast Guard yeah. who had the boats. The Coast Guard had the life preserver. The Coast Guard had the search and rescue equipment. You know, so it was all the work of the Coast Guard. If it hadn't been for the Coast Guard, there's no way I would have been, been saved. So to say that my simple little decision to reach out and grab a life preserver makes salvation all about me is is absurd. It's I mean, absurd. It's just, it's just ridiculous. What, 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 when, when I reach out for that life preserver, I am making a statement. I'm demonstrating that I can't save myself, that I'm utterly dependent on the Coast Guard to save me. And so grabbing the life preserver is an act of surrender. It's an act of desperation. It's an act of, I, there's no other way that I'm going to be able to save myself. And I'm, and I'm going to give up ever thinking that I could. And so that's, that's actually surrender. It's not control. Um, and, and so to, to say that that somehow diminishes God's sovereignty, I think is, is kind of rather silly, really, you know, because mm -hmm. it's, it's, it is the ultimate surrender. It's the ultimate humiliation. I can't save myself. The only, my only hope, but the rope is my only hope. So, uh, you know, I think that's a, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, perf perfectly said. Yeah. Uh, I can't tell you how much I've heard that analogy used against me say, because I'm not a Calvinist when I used to attend a Calvinist church. And I, I'm just like, no, this isn't a me centered or me doing anything. Look, it's 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 God who's the one meriting my salvation and everything like that. So, yeah, uh, well said on both of your guys' account. And Tyler, I, I saw you were trying to get in earlier. So, like, yeah, I don't know. what. Well, it. It comes, you know, a lot of this too comes from this false assumption that like everything we do or everything we participate in merits something, right? And exactly with Phil's analogy of the life preserver, grabbing onto the life preserver did not some way, did not earn your salvation at that point, right? You didn't do anything to earn the fact that the life preserver was thrown to you anyway. What you were doing was drowning. <laughs> and if we want to, I mean, are we going to say that, well, I was drowning. Therefore, that's a work. Therefore, I earned my salvation because I was drowning. That's crazy. And I that realized I acknowledged 
that I was drowning. And therefore the Coast right. Guard was then obligated to pull me in. You know, it's not just right. that that you grabbing a hold of the life preserver now now earns or merit. It's like now the Coast Guard is obligated. It, it sort of assumes that now the Coast Guard has to. They have no choice. No, right. the Coast Guard decides even then to drag you in because they're nice people and they want to do their job well. If they wanted to, they could say, oh, you know what? This guy's actually uh, whatever. Let's just not. Say, I mean, they could do that. And and with your point with the news, Phil, what rational, logical, you know, person would in any any sense give credit, you know, because this is the whole issue. Who gets the credit here? Who gets the credit for salvation? Uh, 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 the Calvinists have to say that in some way. Go ahead. Go ahead, Phil. Well, I was just well, saying. I, if, I was just going to say. If, if the Coast Guard, if the Coast Guard heard that interview, they'd all look at each other like I was an idiot. <laughs> yes, right. Well, this, well this imagine, guy imagine a uh, <laughs> this guy saying. Uh, imagine himself. a news report. Imagine a yeah. news report coming out saying, "Man lost at sea uh, heroically helps rescue himself from you know his <laughs> ultimate demise." It's like what. what well, let's not let's not read the news articles from this <laughs> yeah. this I, place I, I, anymore. I, made, I mean, I, I mean, it would. Yeah, I made the comments in the book um, to think one tiny decision on man's part suddenly make this makes this all about us represents a deeply dysfunctional mental outlook on this issue. It would be like me mm -hmm. telling all my friends that I single handedly cured myself of a life threatening disease simply because I chose to hold out my arm and receive a shot. All must gasp and marvel at my magnificent medical expertise. The libertarian free will exercise of humble childlike faith is a matter of surrender, not power, ability, expertise, dominance, autonomy, or control. I'm, hmm. I'm just glad to find out I'm not I'm not crazy all of these years when I was telling this to my uh, Calvinist former Calvinist pastor. So thank yeah. you for affirming that I was right. So yeah, <laughs> thanks guys. <laughs> Well, well, one, one more illustration, Phil, I would take it further than a shot in the arm would be if I discover I have, you know, a life-threatening heart disease. And so I go to my surgeon, desperate, broken, humble, saying, please, I, I, I believed for whatever reasons the person who revealed my condition to me and I, my surgeon, I go to him and I say, please help me. I, I give myself to him. And then he performs the intricate work of, you know, heart transplant, uh, how absolutely absurd to in any way give the patient credit for him being fixed. He's going to be, I, I did nothing. I, I, I took no part, no right. part at all. Did I play? I get no credit for the fact that I'm still standing here today. I, I, Thank God for surgeons. Thank God for people who spend years and years in medical school. Nobody right. in their right mind is going to give a, a, an ounce of credit to the man for participating in his heart surgery or somehow helping the surgeon, like because he because he asked the surgeon or, or, or was willing to participate in the surgery that somehow that that helped the surgeon in his performing of the surgery. I mean it. It is just uh, uh, a bit absurd. You know, Jordan, I, I would even 
I honestly would take it a step further because because St. Paul takes it a step further, right? So listen to this. Now, granted, this is the guy that has literally said in Romans 6, it is of grace. If it were of works, by definition, it would not be of grace, right? Then it wouldn't listen be a gift. What, right. So listen to what Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 3. I'll start in 5. What after all is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. Now, hold on. This has to do with salvation. This is in the context of belief. Listen to this. As the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed. Apollos watered it. But God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. Notice they're not saying, I'm not doing anything, right? I'm not yeah. actively participating in their faith, right? But they are making that claim. I planted the seed. I preached the gospel. Apollos comes later on and teaches them the things about the gospel and how to practically apply this thing to their lives. But God is the one making it grow. But listen, but only God who makes things grow is worth anything. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. Ah, here we go. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's, God's building. Y'all know what that word co-workers is in Greek? Guess what? I it's, do because you, you taught me in our last session. It's synergy. <laughs> so I have no idea why Calvinists will harp on this this word, this center, the it's uh, it's synergy. So reports of the devil. Like no, rip that, verse, rip that verse out of the Bible. You better do it quick. You better do it quick because, <laughs> and that's not the only place, right? We went over more of these in Jordan's episode, so I won't rehash that information here. But I just want to make the point that. In the context of salvation, in the context of belief, Paul says that both him and Apollos do things, but do they cr take credit for their coming to faith? Are the Corinthians coming to faith? No, they still say the growth because they can plant seeds all day long. Remember Jesus's parable about the seeds and the sower, the one who sows, right? Some seeds land on rocky ground. Some seeds land and the birds come and swoop them away. But other seeds land on good ground. And it's that good ground that, notice it's good ground, by the way, that God causes the growth in, right? And, and synergistically, Paul, Apollos, and we can even say us, work together for one's salvation. Does that mean we merit it by any stretch? Nope. And guess what? We're even going to get rewards for it. So there is some some sense there, but the point is, and this involves, I believe, people praying to God that someone would be saved, right? People coming to someone and, and sharing the gospel with them and then praying for them to be saved later on. That's all activity that's in some way, shape, or form attributing to this person's salvation, and yet we still say at the same time, but without God, None of that, or, or I should say all of that would be in vain. It would be purposeless because without God, and God is the only person that can do this, right? Or I should say the only three persons that can do this, but God is the only three persons that can do this in the sense of if anything is credited to anybody, 
it's God. And that's how we at the same time can say that and we synergistically cooperate with God. And so with that being, I don't know if you guys want to comment on that, uh, but after well, I just, this, I just wanted yeah. to, I just wanted to mention that I have a, I have a chapter in the book called praying for the programmed. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> I love it. I love, I love yeah, your title. I can, I can, I can yeah, imagine yeah, where that might. You'll, you'll love my chapters. I, I have a chapter called election fraud. Um, and a, a space theodicy. Oh, nice. Because I'm a I'm a science fiction freak. Yeah, I tried to I tried to name the chapters in clever ways if I could, you know. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Doomed from the womb, you know. But that was that was Calvin's actual yeah, that was his actual terminology. Right. He actually said right. that some people are doomed from the womb, you know. So I have a chapter yeah. on that. I have a chapter called Dead Man yeah. Walking. Right. It's about being dead in about being dead in our sins, you know, and Jesus, whether or not dude. that means yeah. that we can't repent, you know. Right. So yeah, it's. I need to, I, I I need to, to order your to book. Is it on Amazon? It yes. is, and I've got the link to it in the description of this video. So and, if y'all, well, there's and, a, there's your shout out. I yeah I um I really, I'm not much of a paperback reader, mm -hmm. but I got to tell you, I really enjoy getting the thing on paperback because, you know, it's just. You know, it's just you can feel it, you can touch it, you can, you know, and it's it's kind of, but make sure you have I time. It's 40, as well, it's four hundred and forty pages, so make sure that you got oh. some, make sure you got some coffee and a warm blanket, and you know, so yeah, kind of like this episode. <laughs> but I mean, we we well, get a well, we get a huge amount of pushback for saying that. Um, that there's such a thing as synergism in the Bible because we are called upon to repent and make a free will, libertarian free will decision to place our faith in Christ. And your word merit, Tyler, is absolutely critical. It's absolutely okay. vital to this entire conversation because we contribute nothing of merit. Right. To Not that we contribute nothing, but we right. contribute nothing of merit. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, right that's on. where there's all these assumptions that come in, you know, about when this these sort of questions arise. Uh, and this kind of gets to the question, Tyler, we discussed in our last video about, well, why did you believe in your neighbor didn't? You know, are you right. better? Um, but it, it's just I think the whole questions in, in this this realm, these questions in my mind are just, you know, and in my initial thought is just where where are you getting these questions from in the first place. What what is leading right. me to ask this? Because it's not the Bible. What, where in the Bible does is there a scripture that has a problem with somebody believing as if somehow faith is going to to distract or detract from the glory of God? Like what where is this concept coming from? Because to me, you know, it, it it's hard not to just want to say, "Who are you, old man, to question God? This is how right. God went. Why are you why are you questioning the way He has done it? He says He saves those who believe." He says he gives life to the one who comes to him. Who are you, old man, to question that? Why are right. you claiming that that somehow steals glory from God? Who are you to question the way the potter has chosen to, to mold the clay? This is how he's done it. And if we have explicit passages that we've we've discussed, I think, just, just a minuscule amount of the explicit life uh, uh, comes after or or 
where faith precedes regeneration texts that are in the scripture. There's so many. And so if, if the explicit teaching of the Bible is that grace, life is something that is accessed through faith, then why are you arguing against that? Why are you coming up with what in my mind are little more than philosophical and emotional arguments against what the scripture just plainly says? Right. You're presenting right. an emotional argument that is, is you can't find grounds for it in the Bible because the Bible has no issue with saying the, the, the burden is on us to believe or not. And that belief is, is not meriting. It's actually, Paul will say in Romans that it's because it's by faith that it can rest on grace. So the nature of whatever faith is, is something that sets up the ability for salvation to be by grace because the nature of faith is such that it, it's not meritorious. It doesn't earn anything. It doesn't obligate God. That's the nature of what faith is. And so it's because it's by faith that it may rest on grace. Uh, right. The Calvinists would have to say it's because it's by unconditional election that the promises can come by by grace. Well, no, that no, it's not. It, it's it's faith. And so I th I just think there's there's so many assumptions being brought into these questions, things that are being assumed about the nature of what faith is, uh, things that are being assumed about about all these different aspects that that really I think if you remove these assumptions assumptions, these questions, these objections, uh, uh, there's no reason to raise them in the first place. Right. Anytime that somebody brings to me the concept of stealing glory from God, I just automatically rebut back. Oh, you mean the glory that Jesus says that he gives me that, that, that glory. I'm just saying, I mean, can't John steal 17, something that you're given. Can't steal something that's given to you, bro. Like, I mean, that's stupid. John 17, 22 says this very thing. The glory you gave to me, I have given to them. This is the glory that Jesus shared with the father before the world was created. So we're talking about the same glory here, but you can't steal something that's given to you. Um, but to that point, I guess I would say, um, you know, Dr. James White, because I, I just, for some reason, that Twitter post of his just, uh, came into my mind is it resonating now, in your head it is it is but now he's got three Where hours of material he can stick in his pipe and smoke it so <laughs> but we do got some uh we do got some audience questions and so i want to uh Tyler, i definitely want to get to them yeah I, go I, ahead, hate, I hate to do this but i'm gonna kick myself for the rest of the week if if i don't say at least one one little thing about john 6 44 because i know yeah, so many yeah, of the calvinists will have checked out at that point and will say well there you go he can't handle yeah. john 6 44 so go so i just want to say that actually john 6 john 6 44 completely just reiterates and reconfirms everything i was already saying i wasn't jumping over it because i was i was afraid to to handle it um it was just we're not exegeting john 6 which we've talked about uh, maybe walking through the whole passage sometime, Tyler, me and Josh discussed that. I think yeah. when you jumped off the other night, but so John six forty four, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So in the Calvinist handling of this text, the drawing right would be equivalent to regeneration. Is that correct? Would you say that's accurate? Um, I mean, not, not necessarily. I think I think what the Calvinists would say is that that the drawing it's God's determining will that they would become believers and that he draws believers 
and that he does not draw those who, whom he has not determined to believe. So I don't, I'm not sure that that refers to regeneration in the in the Calvinist okay. mindset. Um, it could, but it it I don't think it's necessary that it has to refer to that. Is it real quick? Just okay. a clarifying question, then, Phil. Is does it follow then that that act leads to regeneration? Then, like, you can't separate the two. Well, um, I don't know. I mean, I don't. Okay. I it, I think there's probably a variety of answers that the Calvinists, that the whole sure. Calvinist community might give to that question, um, and they might not all answer it the same way. No, fair enough. Fair enough. Go ahead, Jordan. Sorry, I didn't mean to okay. over there. So no one, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So the drawing precedes the coming. But we know that what. So whatever this drawing is, you know, if it's if it's not regeneration, I think some might say this is, you know, somewhat synonymous with that. But the coming comes after, and we know in. Uh, you know, John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. The one who comes to me will not be hungry. The one who believes in me will never be thirsty. So coming and believing are somewhat used interchangeably uh, throughout John 6. And, and both are what leads to the subsequent being made alive. You, 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 uh, you come and whoever comes will not be hungry. So coming satisfies your hunger. Coming means you are partaking in the bread of life that is Christ. And believing means you will never be thirsty. So you are drinking the blood of Christ through belief. So whatever this drawing is, um, you can't say that this that life had to come before the coming because we know that it's after the coming. It, it's after the believing that one experiences life because you can't unless uh, uh, where is it? Unless you eat the, the flesh of, of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you I already talked right. about this verse earlier. Um, and now I'm trying to find it, but it's in here somewhere. You have no life in you unless you first come and believe. And so again, I'll just say the order here, whatever you, you say the drawing is, what well, you can't say it's, regeneration life you can't say that the life somehow comes before the coming that you have to be made alive in order to come um because the life is a result of coming and believing of consuming of feeding on christ who is the bread of life gotcha no that's good uh, that's good phil is there anything you'd like to add before we get to these audience questions um just that um the uh if you look at John 6, 44, and it says, no one can come to me except unless the Father draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. That phrase, I will raise him up at the last day, also appears in John 6, 40, where he says, it is the will of my Father that all who look to the Son and believe in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So who is the group of people that he's going to raise up at the last day? It's those who believe. Mm -hmm. So go back to verse 44, and what is it? Who are the people that the Father draws? those who believe. So now the question is, do they believe because the Father draws them, or does the Father draw them because they believe? John 6 doesn't answer that question. Right. Because, it's because Unless, it, it, was, it wasn't designed to answer all of our soteriological questions. It's simply, yeah. and, and the, word, the word for draw in the Greek 
can mean to drag. Uh, it can mean to attract. It can mean to woo. Um, and there's nothing in the text that indicates the idea that this drawing of the father is irresistible. Nothing. So the father draws people, and Jesus says, I will draw all men to myself. And so when it in, in proximity, in close proximity to that, it's it's people who have learned of God and who have known of the Father. And so people who have learned of God and who and who has some kind of experience or some kind of some kind of uh, influence from the Father, that's what drawing means because that's the that's what that's the text, that's the context of what of what that that whole mm -hmm. verse is all about. You know, so um it's it, it's it is just simply an antecedent assumption that if that God drawing people is the same as God predestining people to believe and to be saved. It is simply not in the text. Mm -hmm. So it is an antecedent assumption that is made based on an antecedent ideology that has already been adopted prior to approaching the text. And that's mm -hmm. that. That is what John Calvin did. That's what Augustine did. And uh, I mean, John Calvin had his deterministic framework in place long before he ever approached the biblical data. And I argue for that in the book. And I think that's a pattern that we need to avoid. Agreed. So the uh, verse you were referencing is is forty five, which comes directly after forty four. And so I think it's always important to read those. <laughs> Uh, yep. together where he says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. What that does is like you said, both the Calvinists and the non-Calvinists at this point now have to come up with the category of, okay, well, who are these people? You know, cause that's not answered here. Who are the people that are drawn? Why are they drawn? This text should initially lead us to way more questions than it does answers. Uh, and then he goes on in 45, it is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So who is it that is drawn? Who is it that comes? Well, it's those who have heard and learned from the Father. So now you could you could insert into that and say, okay, well, they're hearing and learning from the Father because they were unconditionally elected, chosen for the foundations of the world to, to do so. Well, well, okay. Not in the text. But not it's not there, the you know. Not and so we both text. have to go through the, it's not there. So we, we both have to come up with, okay, well, who, who are these people? Who are they? Why are they drawn? When yeah, are they like, drawn? What is it that, that like, makes like them? Yeah, and like I said, John six forty answers that question. Mm -hmm. It's those who believe. Right. And again, we come back to the same question: Do they believe because the Father draws them, or does the Father draw them because they believe? The text doesn't answer that question. The text: What Jesus is trying to say is that the only way anybody is going to be saved is for the Father to perform some kind of work that's going to provide that salvation for people. The only way that anybody's going to come to Jesus in faith is because of the work of the Father. If the, if the Father didn't work and didn't help us, didn't do something to provide for that salvation and to give us the, the ability to come to him in faith, then nobody would. Nobody would be saved and we'd all be lost. We'd all fry. That's all Jesus is saying. He's not saying anything about the order of salvation. He's not saying anything about the mechanics of salvation at all. 
He's say, he's simply talking about the who, not the what. Mm-hmm. Right on, Dill. Is so there much anything? more that could be said about John six. Yeah, for sure. I was just gonna say so much more. This 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 deserves a uh, uh, entire episode because there's there's a lot to to dive into here. Agreed. Agreed. Dell, is there anything that you'd like to add before we get to the audience questions? Um, no, I, I think uh, Jordan and Phil actually said exactly what I, w- I would have said on John 644. I've always yeah. recognized that. I think you and me, Tyler, we actually did a show. Who was it? Was it? It wasn't Warren McGrew. I forget. Um, but we uh, it was another guy. And we were talking about that. And I was saying, yeah, like, obviously, the, God... I, I do believe God needs to draw us in order to enable us. So the Holy Spirit plays an enabling role, and that's to everyone to some yep. degree. And we can choose to respond to the Holy Spirit or not. We can choose to resist or not. So, yeah, that's always been my take on reading John John chapter 6, 44. So, yeah. All right. All righty. Let's, uh, let's get to the Super Chats, and, uh, and then we will wrap so Gia, $5 super chat. Thank you for that, brother. How do you respond to Revelation 13.8? And Jordan, if you want to go ahead and get this ready and pull it up on the screen, uh, feel free. Mm-hmm. The lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Or Judas, the Calvinist, loved, to, loved using to justify predetermination of sin. Let me pull it up here. Yeah. Um, there it goes. A man after my own heart. Bible hub. (laughs) Yes. Been using it for years. My favorite. So I I would, yeah, I would, I would uh, say before the foundation of the world and Tyler, you would, you would be the one to, to need to dive into the Greek here. But, Mm -hmm. um, there is there is perhaps reason to think that perhaps it could be translated from the foundation of of the world the lamb who was uh the names have not been written from or since the founding of the world or since the foundation of the world which would immediately make this text uh a whole lot different than than what it is if if we read the esv translation um so Ty, I don't know if you want to want to look into the the word there if you want to get into that or or just let's see here. You can you can uh, click on interlin at the top of the page there. Ah, yeah, it's uh apo. So from like literally from the founding from. of the world. Yeah, from uh, which is from or away from that that word can be translated, and so in this context, it looks like uh, from the foundation of the world. So, but the point remains that that the the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. In other words, that was something that God knew that God planned um, long ago, long before it ever occurred in history, and so. Right whether you say from or before um, it, the, the fact remains that it's, it was still prior to the actual historical event. Um, yeah. And I, I think 
it, it just seems to me that that this is simply articulating the fact that that God knew and ordained and and actually determined. God does determine some things. That the that the cross was determined. The cross was predetermined. That is one of the outcomes that God actually did determine. And so we before don't before the foundation of the world. Yeah, I mean, so, so um, I, I am one of those strange believers who thinks that God is not a time-bound being, that he exists outside of time, and that he sees all of history as a present reality laid, be laid before him, and that he can see the beginning from the end. He can see the alpha from the omega. And so he sees the event, the historical event of the cross, but he sees that as an ever-present reality. He always sees and always knows all of history all at once. And he's outside of history, but he can still act inside of history. So the fact that the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world, I think, is perfectly consistent with the fact that God is not a time-bound being and that God knew and planned the cross ahead of time yeah. because he knew that man would fall. doesn't mean he caused man to fall. It just means that he knew it. Knowledge is not causal. And if this is if this is the you know all who uh, whose names have not been written from the foundation of the world again if it's from the foundation rather than before the foundation of the world then there's there's no reason to look at this because I think what uh, uh, what many would do is say oh well look this is God has predetermined whose names would be written in the book of life He's predetermined who would be saved before the foundation of the world He decided that but that's not what this is saying. If it's from, then it's from the point that the world was created, there have been names that have not been written in the book of life from that point. And I think due to the fact that they re they refuse to receive a love of the truth, uh, a love of the truth, and so be saved, going full circle back to Second Thessalonians. And so from the foundation of the world throughout history, there have been people whose names have not ended up being written in the Lamb's uh, Book of Life. And to that point, Jordan, if he wanted to, if uh, John wanted to say before explicitly, he could have used words uh, different than that. Uh, enopion would be one of them that means before or in front of. Uh, so there are definitely definitely other words John could have used, of, uh, used if he wanted to uh, insinuate that this is actually before the world was created. So just, just a, a little Greek point mm -hmm. there. But even, even if, yeah. even if it was before the foundation of the world, right. All of the people who are, whose names are written in the book of life, they're written in the book of life. They could be there before the foundations of the world because God knows who is going to be saved and who isn't, who's going to put their faith in Christ and who is not. Right. And so since he knows Ahead of time, he knows that before the foundations of the world, because he's all knowing. Um, and so the fact that our names are written in the book of life and God is aware that they are written in the book of life. He is aware that, that we made the libertarian free will decision to put our faith in Christ doesn't mean that he determined ahead of time who was going to be saved and who wasn't. That's completely different from what this what this passage is saying. God's knowledge of the future is not God's causation of the future. And so it's, it's, it's not valid for the Calvinist to argue 
that since our names are written in the book of life before the foundation of the world, therefore God must have chosen us before the foundation of the world. That's that it doesn't follow. You know, it's not not a logical, mm-hmm. not a logical progression. So. Right. Mm-hmm. Dale and and I don't I don't know what or oh. Judas means. What 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 is the phrase or Judas? I don't I I think the the prediction that Judas would be like would, would fall away and that they would have to replace him in Acts two specifically. Or, or, or Acts 1, I think it is. Um, I think that's what he was referring to, that Judas, it seems like Calvinists like to use the fact that Judas was predestined or determined to sin uh, in the, yeah, in the way, there, or apostatized, a, I should say. Yeah, go ahead. There's, there's a, I can't remember exactly what the scripture is. I wish I could remember, but I know there's, there, I think there's one in the way it phrases kind of the situation with Judas. It kind of seems like it could allude to him having been predestined to determine to do what he did but um, but see the point is though that text doesn't say that what it says is that they need to find someone to replace judas that's the prediction not necessarily and and then the 30 pieces of silver thing but in the if it's the text that i'm thinking of that the the main point of emphasis there is that they're to call another one to replace the bishopric of judas specifically uh, and, and that's, that's what that's talking about. Not that Judas mm-hmm. was predetermined to fall away or, 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 um, yeah, determined to sin, but Phil or Dell, yeah. if you want to comment on that, uh, further, feel free. Yeah, I guess, um, like I, I agree. I think it was Phil that was talking about it. So if it's saying the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, that it's obviously not speaking about chronologically before, but it it's, uh, logically before, right? So it's. <laughs> I take a Molinist understanding, so I I would interpret that in terms of God's middle knowledge. He knows what every free creature would do in any given set of circumstances, and he knew what we would choose to do, and that would ultimately, in this, if he actualized this world, and that would, once he created, then God has his free knowledge. He knows what will happen, and that, in that sense, I guess, that's predetermined is kind of it's it's meaning it's guaranteed it's not determined in the philosophical sense in that my free will isn't free or anything like that but it's just god mm-hmm. god knows in advance what we're all going to choose if he created this world then he did create this world and he knows that that's going to end up in the lamb being slain so that's how i interpret that in terms of middle knowledge and then free free knowledge and by the way i would i would guess um that most Calvinists would say that Judas was not saved. But earlier, and I think it's even in the book of John, Jesus says, have I not chosen you, the 12? Mm -hmm. He didn't say, have I not chosen you, the 11? So if Judas was chosen, how come yet one of you is the devil? Right, yeah, right here, uh, Jeeb. To that point, Phil, uh, Jeeb says, John 13, 8, I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eats bread with me has lifted up his hill against me. I was thinking of Acts. He was talking about that verse. Yeah, but Jesus also said, have I not chosen you, the 12? Um, So, but here's another interesting question that sometime we could talk about and that we could ponder. Um, was Judah saved? That's a good question. 
I would tend to say no, but is this is this a question? Like I've put no thought into it, but I I've just assumed no, he, he wasn't saved. He lifted up. His, I would agree with Dell. Yeah, he lifted up. He lifted up his heel against Jesus. Well, so did Peter. Peter denied Jesus. Right. There are all sorts of examples of the disciples who were going rogue and who were doing things that that God did not will. Who were doing things that were opposed to Jesus' agenda in His but redemption of you know, His plan of redemption. Um, it never Judas says in the Bible that Judas was not saved. But he may Judas have he may have made a huge mistake and he might have betrayed his Lord. But a lot of people betray their Lord. A lot of people betray Jesus all throughout their lives. They betray Jesus, and if they if they betray Jesus and they go out and hang themselves, does that mean that they end up in hell? We don't know. Bible doesn't necessarily, it's not, it's not a conclusive proposition, you know. The only thing that I would, uh, and it's Acts 125, I believe, where they talk about Judas going to his own place. Um, I, I don't know what that means. So I guess that question would predicate what, what exactly that phrase means. Uh, in, in Potter's field. Right, right. Uh, well, I, I think I thought this was hold on. Let me let me just pull it up real quick. Uh Acts one. Let's see. So uh Jordan, can you pull up Acts one for me real quick? Yep. I just I just want to look at it like in Yep. It's Acts um, one twenty. Yeah. Let me I have one sixteen, but I'll pull up the whole thing real quick. Yeah, there you go. So 16 is probably one of those troublesome verses that people have in mind where, where he says, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide for those who arrested Jesus. Um, he was one of our number and shared in this ministry. Now, with a reward for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong and burst open in the middle, and all his intestines spilled out. This became known to all who lived in Jerusalem, so they called that field in their own language a kaldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of the Psalms, May his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his position. Uh, did you... Did I come yeah. across the one you were looking for, Tyler? No, nah, right there uh, in verse 25. Keep going. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who, having accompanied us the whole time the Lord Jesus went out, uh, went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism until the day Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us uh, of his resurrection. So they proposed two men, Joseph called Bersabbas, also known as Justice and Matt, Matthias, and they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take up this ministry and apostleship, which Judas abandoned to go to his rightful place. That's so the uh, ones so translations that I've read uh, and in the Greek, it's uh, the word Ethios is uh, used uh, his own. And so I guess this translation, what is this, the ESV, Jordan? Uh, I don't know. It was just the default one that okay, comes okay. up. Uh, I think it's the Brian standard. The Brian standard. Okay. And also, so. I'm going to pull my page down because it's freezing up for some reason. Oh, yeah, you're good. But the uh, the Greek phrase that's used is east tone, topon, tone, ethion. So into his own place is the 
word for word translation of that. So I would just be curious yeah. what that meant. If it's rendered, if the Brian's rendering it right to go to his rightful place. Okay, fair enough. Uh, but and, and topos can mean a place, a region, a seat, right, or not, or an opportunity, right, right, exactly. So whatever that means, what, how do you interpret that, Phil? What is, what does that mean to you? Like, um, would that be heaven at that point, or, or Hades? I guess at that point, since, but Jesus had already ascended at that point. So I think it's, I think it's completely inconclusive. Okay, well, fair enough. We don't, we don't, yeah. we don't know what his rightful place was. It could have been a place of of shame. It could have play, been a place of of, uh, of of disreputation. You know, um, it could be a disreputable place. It could be a place. It, it, it's just really whether it's right. whether it's literal or whether it's a metaphor. I mean, it's it's just it's just completely uh, inconclusive as far as I'm concerned. You know, that that's just just me. Um, yeah, sure. Any, anyone is free to disagree. Anybody's free yeah. to disagree with me at any time. Yeah. And, <laughs> and you're free to do that. But, but love's the only way, says he never repented. And I would honestly, so we could say it's inconclusive, right? But I would say that he showed repentance in the most drastic way possible, right? Like he was so torn up about what he did that he literally killed himself over it. Don't we don't think, do that. Go go ahead, Dale. Yeah, like I don't think that's a true salvific repentance of sins, right? Because that, in a, in a way, that's kind of he was sinning again. Like he was he was had a sinful, prideful shame. Maybe, well, like I don't that. know because he went, he gave the money back, like that. I, so I guess I'm taking it all into account. Like he goes back, he throws the money back at these people, and then I don't know. I guess I'm just interpreted to mean like he felt so guilty, like he killed himself over it. Mm-hmm. but okay well it's, it, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily mean a salvific repentance but it doesn't rule it out either um right in but, inconclusive yeah yeah. That's why, well, yeah i think well the only again, other thing that, you know, is Ty, with tyler I, again i don't know the greek and stuff but with tyler's interpretation he went to his own place like that speaks to me of whatever the intermediate state of of hell is not the final hell or whatever but I mean, he's in his own place. He's separated from God. If he was with God and the saints in heaven, then that would. So yeah, that's the only thing that's maybe a clue. But again, I don't know the Greek and stuff. So, right. I, I'm sorry I brought it up. No, <laughs> no, it's a it's an interesting it's question. Kind of a, it's kind of a bunny trail. Um, but the reason I brought yeah. it up is because, um, Jesus did say, "Heaven I not chosen you, the twelve. And yet one of you is going to betray me. Um, right. But he still said, I've chosen the 12. And so unless the Calvinist wants to say that there are different kinds of choosing, um, then that lanes you in a briar patch, you know, um, right. then uh, that seems to that seems to kind of be counterindicative of the Calvinist narrative that if God chooses you, you're going to be saved. And um, the fact that the names of the 12 apostles are on the what was it? The pillars of new Jerusalem, I think in revelation. So unless that's like Matthias, then if it's the original 12, then Judas's name is on one of those pillars of the new Jerusalem. And that means salvation. I mean, in my interpretation of it, but I just want to say this for for Phil's benefit. I yeah. would, if I am wrong about Judas, that would be amazing. I would love That'd be to crazy, wouldn't it? Heaven. That would yeah. be great. So, yeah. 
I hope yeah. you're right. Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> and I don't, I don't have a position would, on it. That's why I said it's in. I think it's inconclusive. You know? Sure. So I don't, I don't have a position either way. So. Cool. I think that perhaps the uh, the more the more interesting question, maybe or or the one that would need to be addressed before we even discuss is is Judas and hell or not would be what is hell in the first place and mm -hmm. what do we mean by hell, um, which would obviously <laughs> require. Uh, another three hour and 40 minute conversation perhaps <laughs> right. to, to dive into that. Right. Uh, so let's just go to Josh's question and then we can address hell later. How about that? <laughs> there you go. All right. The last question we've got, Josh, when Rahab, now I like this one. This is why I chose it. Uh, so when Rahab deceived the guards in Jericho to save the spies, was that morally permissible? Um, it's an interesting question. Um, I addressed it in another book that I wrote. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering if I might kind of be off topic. Um, I don't know how, how it would relate to Calvinism or to determinism. Um, so if, if you want to, we can dive into it if you like. Um, I think whenever Josh put that up, we were talking about how deception is not or is evil and so that's mm -hmm. whenever he asked that question because rahab deceived and yet because she deceived she ended up being saved for it okay that's that's what he's connecting that to so yeah if you want to address it go ahead um the, the way that i would address it um is um i i really like a book written about i don't know it must have been 30 years ago um, by Norman Geisler called Graded Absolutism. Mm. And I think that it was morally permissible for Rahab to deceive the guards because she lied to the guards. You know, she said, oh, yeah, I saw those spies. I know who you're talking about. And, I, and they went that way. If you if you hurry, you might catch up with them. Well, she lied to the guards because the, the spies were still on her roof when she told them that. So the guards went away and she saved the the, the spies' lives. Um, so I, I think it's more than just a seed. You know, the, the Rahab actually lied to the guards. And in that book, um, Norman Geisler argued that, um, that there's some moral imperatives that transcend other moral imperatives and that Rahab lied to the guards in order to save the lives of the spies because she knew that the guards would have, she knew that the authorities would have killed them eventually. They probably would have interrogated them and then they would have killed them. So, so she is, she is actually commended in the faith hall of fame in Hebrews. Um, and therefore it was morally permissible because you cannot be commended for your faith for something that is a sinful Right. So I don't think that that Ray, that uh, that rehab sinned, but the problem is that moral dilemmas only occur with human beings. God never faces moral dilemmas, never. So, if that the fact that some human beings may be able to break one moral law in order to satisfy another moral law. Um, that doesn't mean that God is ever justified in doing the same himself because he never faces moral dilemmas. Um, and the other thing that we have to understand is 
that um, Rahab lied to the guards, but the scriptures tell us clearly that it is impossible for God to lie. Mm-hmm. So if it's impossible for God to lie and lying and deceiving are morally equivalent and are inter- interchangeable, then I would argue that it's impossible for God to deceive. And it would never occur, you know, th- this, this kind of moral dilemma that human beings face would never occur for God because he's God. And so he never faces moral dilemmas. And therefore, it remains static that it's impossible for God to lie and that God would not deceive and that would be sinful if he ever did. Jordan, is there anything that you'd like to add before we wrap? I was just going to say, perhaps you could you could think about uh, Moses permitting divorce, um, mm. you know, and and it seems to kind of maybe tie into to the way you were you were kind of describing that, Phil, um, that it's not the ideal, the ideal situation. But in in the context, uh, you know, one moral imperative uh, kind of outweighs outweighs the other and. And so, yeah, I, I think that was, that was a great way of answering that, Phil. I, I honestly was kind of wondering how are you were going to, how are you going to get around that one? But I think the idea that a human being will face those moral dilemmas and might be faced with a position where they have to choose, you know, allowing the death of, of innocent men over a lie, that's just something that God won't face. And if it, if it needs to be made more clearly, uh, be made more clear, God cannot lie. Um, right. Yeah. Right on. Go ahead, Dale. Yeah. So I feel I hate you because you stole my answer. Like that. that <laughs> um, yes. I'm sorry. I, no, no me. You're the guest, so you 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 take precedence. But uh, yeah, no, I I totally agree with Phil. That's exactly how I would answer it. Um, in terms of my moral thing, I I go with a combination of deontology and virtue ethics. And uh, looking at the deontology part, there are these moral principles and that sort of thing, or vague moral rules. So there's a principle of truth. There's a principle of life. And and um, I forget who we were looking at, but I think they the person we we're talking about had to lie to save a life. Um, of course, yeah, the right yes, that's that's morally per, uh, permissible, but it's not morally ideal because there are things uh, with the moral principle. OK, so so uh, Rahab had to um, lie. So she, in a sense, violated the moral principle of truth. But moral principles come with built in exemptions. So, you know, one should not tell one should not tell a lie or falsehoods unless there's a morally justified reason for doing so. And in the moral hierarchy, sometimes in this fallen world, two or more principles conflict and you have to say which one is more weighty. And that's where you get into the the graded absolutism that Phil was talking about or uh, the conflicting absolutism view, which is the view I take. So it's it's kind of the lesser of two evils. It's it's still not ideal. We should we should the ideal situation is we should never have to lie and we shouldn't have to lose a life. But because we're in this fallen world, sometimes we have to take the lesser of two evils and, and exempt one principle, moral principle or something like that. So, yeah, um, that's that's pretty much. Oh, uh, the only other thing I'll disagree with these guys on that makes me a bit unique is 
uh, this notion that God can't lie. Uh, so I used to think that, but um, just to provide nuance, I think that God can lie. It's logically possible for God to lie, but it's not metaphysically possible. So that's kind of a, a nuanced distinction. But uh, yeah, that's that's the only thing I would differ from these guys on. So yeah. Right on, right on. All right. Well, y'all, this has been a marathon of a show. And actually, I think we have just, if I remember right, we haven't done a show longer than this. So we just broke the record for longest show on Faith Unaltered thus far. So congratulations. Right. I need sound effects. Like I need a board yeah. with some sound yeah. effects so I can do some applause and some funny sounds. Anyway, when was, but when I was on SNS, believe it or not, I think we did one close to five hours once. Uh, uh, yeah, I can't do that. That's brutal. That is brutal. Let's see if we can, let's see if we can break that record. <laughs> and that's go. been faith unaltered good night I'm, I'm up for it i'm up for it i'll just i'll just stay here and i'll just keep talking and you guys can <laughs> we'll just, drop off. just text me whenever morning, you, uh, you done. <laughs> <laughs> i'll end the stream whenever i wake up in the morning yeah that's good but no phil it's been an absolute pleasure we will have to have you back for part two uh and i loved hearing you and jordan really interacting and, and and getting down to really the bottom of this issue. I think, I genuinely think we put Calvinism in the dock, as uh, I think C.S. Lewis would put it. And uh, he, well, Calvinism uh, did not come out on top today. Obviously, there's going to be some people uh, that disagree, and that is fine. That is your right to disagree or to agree. But at the same time, I think we all presented a very, very good case in favor of the non-Calvinistic pers uh, persuasion of which we all kind of separate or, or not separate of which we all are in different pockets of in the Christendom camp. And so uh, I, I, I've thoroughly enjoyed this and I don't say that it was long out of you know boredom or anything like that. This was awesome. And as Josh would say, I am extremely pleased with how this conversation went. And so we'll have to have both of you guys back uh, for part two. And then if Israel sees this, uh, Phil, and he wants to interact, uh, I would love to have you back on for that as well. And so I've got your book in the description. Uh, if you want, uh, take some time and plug where other or where people can find you at if you've got a website or youtube channel or other books that you've may have written uh feel free to to go ahead and plug that real quick um yeah i don't have a youtube channel and i have been excoriated severely for not having a youtube channel every all my friends tell me I, it's stupid that i don't have one you know um so i apologize um, I am on Substack. So if you go to philbear.substack.com, I have a lot of articles on Substack, but most of them are not theological or philosophical. Well, some of them are philosophical. Um, uh, what I have a chapter from my book, Machines Don't Laugh, um, on Substack. And it, it's about um, it's about science disguise or philosophy disguised as science. Um, that book is, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, so I wrote a book about atheism called Machines Don't Laugh. Um, and it's on Amazon as well. If you just go to Amazon and search for Phil Bear, all my books will come up. I have another book on Marxism called Marx Attacks. 
Um, and that's a play on the movie Mars Attacks. Nice. And I have Karl Marx in a space helmet, you know, that who's attacking Washington and, and uh, attacking our institutions and so on. Um, so I have books about Marxism and critical theory. Um, and I have a book about Roman Catholicism called From Rome to Galilee. And uh, and then I have another another book that's kind of a random collection of essays. It's called Deconstructing Junk Ideology. Um, and the subtitle is A Modern Christian Manifesto. And it's about the culture wars. Um, there's a lot about Donald Trump in there. Um, so if, if there's any Donald Trump haters in the audience, then they're not going to want to read that book or they're not going <laughs> to like it, you know. Um, but I, I don't I don't paint him as some kind of an angel. Um, but I, I do have some analysis of the Trump phenomenon, you know, in the book. But I also address a whole lot of issues in the culture wars about trans and, you know, transgenderism homosexuality, um, woke ideology and that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, those, they're all available on Amazon and I promise someday I will start a YouTube channel and maybe Tyler, you could help me out with it. Or maybe I could become a partner with, with either you or Warren or Layton. Uh, hold you know. on. We got dibs. I just called dibs on Phil <laughs> Bear. And so, nope, nobody. I figured, you'd, I figured you'd jump on that, Tyler. Absolutely. So we actually, it's funny you bring that up. Uh, in all seriousness, though, we are, so we started a networking type idea that, that mm -hmm. we're trying to turn Faith Unaltered into. Uh, Dane has a segment on Tuesdays. We just added a new segment called Pilgrims in the Holy Land, and that's going to be hosted by Carrie Griffel uh, discussing biblical theology and pa uh, practical application. She's going to do that on Thursday nights. So if you would like to do something like that, Phil, talk to me. We, we can make that happen. But uh, Jordan, you are the uh, the owner and you are the host of Great Light Studios. I know you've got more uh, channels than just Great Light Studios, of which you need to uh, just be like Phil and and come on to Faith Unaltered uh, on our team and participate with us. And so you can you can take Saturdays or, or whatever. It's kind of just been naturally happening recently. It has. Anyway, it, so, I mean. <laughs> you just need your own show on here and you'd be good to go. But no, tell other people about uh, your, your other channels and about Great Light Studios, if you would. Yeah. So I, yeah, I do. I have Great Light Studios, which was originally, I started it to make film. So I have um, a, a feature documentary film telling uh, uh, the story of an ex-drug dealer uh, and kind of his his testimony. Um, I have some short films that are kind of visual um, interpretations of different scriptures. And so that, and then just teaching content and most recently uh, a lot of stuff about Calvinism. Um, and then I have a channel called Answering the World Mission Society Church of God, uh, which is something I mentioned earlier that's more devoted to uh, a specific cult group um, with the aforementioned very long winded name. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's where I, I, I work with a lot of former members, uh, members who were in there for, you know, a decade or more who have come out and are, you know, some following Jesus, some still figuring things out. But but we kind of work together and counteract the doctrine. Um, and then I do a lot of interviews with former members, just let them come on, share their stories, um, which in turn helps other people come out and helps people uh, prevent people from getting into this group in the first place. And then also it helps a lot of people who are, who have come out and are kind of processing and, and disoriented emotionally and spiritually and, and in every other way, kind of, kind of have a, a, a bit of a, a healing 
um, um, experience just by being able to listen to others and realize they're not alone and they can be validated in, in what they experienced. Um, and so that's answering the WMSCOG. Um, my goal is to get to a thousand subscribers because it's, it's, I just started it earlier this year um, and I'm, I'm getting close, but I also have this cult group coming after me filing copyright complaints, just trying to get the channel shut down. And so <sighs> if you go over it one day and it's not there, it's because they are, yeah, they're, they're, they're kind of nasty. And so, um, you, you might go over there and it might not be there one of these days, but, uh, it's there for now. So it sounds like you're doing something right then if they're trying to actually get you shut down. So that's good. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. In a sense. Yep. So, and Dell is the yep. host of Real Seekers. Dell, what do you guys got going on uh, uh, on Real Seekers? And 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 talk about your blog as well. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I'm the host of Real Seekers. Uh, kind of like these guys, I do uh, shows each week on various topics in theology and the philosophy of religion, which is my area of specialization and interest. Um, you know, I do topics, anything from I'm going to be on the Reason and Theology show in a couple weeks, talking about kind of my religious journey. Yeah, Michael they, Lofton, Michael Lofton, and uh, Louis Dizon. Yeah, so yeah, talking about my kind of my approach, how I uh, went from an agnostic to a Bible believing Christian, and you know what what I did, and the arguments for God, arguments for Christianity that I found persuasive, and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah, so I, I cover everything. I have guests on my show today. I was actually on S.J. Thomason's channel talking about one of my specialties, the Shroud of Turin. And um, we had Larry Stolle on, if you remember him, Tyler. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, we were covering uh, Bible mention, possible Bible mentions of the Shroud images. So, yeah, that's uh, so I'm at uh, Real Seekers on YouTube or my blog is realseekerministries.wordpress.com. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, that's me. Do you know if he's still using uh, First Clement in in his uh, possible shroud mentions or, or shroud illusions? Uh he did. So he did not raise First Clement. He he packed okay. in a lot of like eight Bible texts and stuff, and uh, he seemed to be convincing people. Even uh, Jamie Russell, who's a fan on here, he says yes. he's a shroud skeptic, but he actually found one of Larry's arguments uh, convincing or something. So well, there you okay. go. There you go. Nice. D nice. Dale, I've um I've I've spent I've lost track of the amount of hours that I've spent over uh the past three or four months uh listening to your stuff. So I would highly recommend it. Um oh, awesome. This last year became very interested uh unexpectedly in the Shroud of Turin, something that I've always dismissed and just kind of been very passive about. Um and till I sat down and turned a video on, just kind of haphazardly one day playing Fortnite with my kids and about 10 minutes into it i was like what is happening right now <laughs> uh, and so it's it's it, so i'm in the middle of renovating my uh my house and so i just whenever i'm working i just turn on your show and listen oh, to all your interviews so um yeah i i would highly recommend anybody interested in 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 that to go check out uh dale's show Thank you so much. Uh, thank God my camera's off because I'm blushing right now. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, <laughs> no, thank you. So that means a lot to me. Yeah. And, and also, so yeah. you're now you're uh, leaning pro shroud now yourself. Or... So I would say, shroud. yes, I yeah, I would say I I heavily lean that way. Um, I'm, I'm very s skeptical by nature, so I'd never say I'm I'm fully convinced. But um, oh, of course, yeah, I'm I'm. 
I'm about 80, 90, 95%, depending on the day and in my mood. But <laughs> here's the fun question, Jordan. How many episodes did it take of Dale's, uh, of, of Real Seekers to get you from hardcore skeptic to over the fence on the other side? Yeah. Well, the first video I came across was actually from uh, Matt, Matt Frad's um, Pints with Aquinas. Yeah. channel he did an interview with um uh dalton uh i think was was the name and and, and i mean it, it was literally within 10 minutes that i found my you know I, I don't know if my jaw was literally gaping but it was kind of that experience of how has nobody ever mentioned these things before why are more people not talking about this like why does anything else matter <laughs> and so you know <laughs> Uh, I don't know how emotional I was in responding to the things I was hearing, but it was just very like, wow. And and then it was it was basically a two, three month journey of anybody who came. I mean, you can ask my wife. She was getting annoyed because you came within a three foot radius of me. I was like, hey, you ever heard about the Shroud of Turin? You want to. <laughs> uh, and so it was just kind of like I became a uh, a, a noob uh, evangelist for for the Shroud. But but then, I, yeah, I spent, you know probably hundreds of, of hours just listening to any interview I, I can get my hands on. And I, I really, really would love to cover this on my channel. Um, uh, when I, when I have the time. Um, Absolutely. And so, yeah. Yeah. You, you got my email or through Tyler, just let me know. No, yes. Please. Yes. So, I no. definitely will. So and Dale, good. if you're ever interested, I would love to have a debate with you about whether it is logically possible for God to lie. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. Yeah, I, think that, I think that would be a fun in-house debate. Definitely. Cause I argue in the book that it is logically impossible for God to lie. Okay. Yeah. I'd love uh, Tyler can give you my email and yeah, let me know. We'll set, as, we'll set that for sure. As long it would, as it would be a very friendly debate, you know, because uh, that's not, that's not a, that's not a subject that I would go to the wall for, you know, but um, I think it's fun. I think it's interesting. Yeah, very fun to talk about. And it's, it also has a lot of implications for determinism, which is, you know, one of my bigger areas of interest, you know, so. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love that for sure. So yeah, I'll give you my emails after the show or Tyler can give it to you guys and we'll set that up. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Faith and Alter uh, would, would love to host that, by the one, way. Just, just so one you know. thing I've got to say, Jordan, you've got to convince Dr. David Falk about the shroud, though. This uh, he came out with a, a skeptical video that I was uh, not that impressed with. But uh, oh. Oh, is it a recent? Is it a recent video? <laughs> it was like three days ago. Yeah, he he was uh, okay. He on my show with that, one of my shows with SJ. So he, he yeah, uh, he was responding to you, wasn't he? In part, also Metatron's video as well. But, okay. Uh, yeah, I, I did a response video to him, but uh, yeah, I'll shut up. I've, about I've it found, you know, I found most of the skeptics' arguments to be, uh, well, I'll just say, weaker than than the pro shroud crowd. Um, yep. Definitely, not much substance to it. Right, yep. right on, right on. Well, y'all, this has been an absolute blast. And as far as uh, faith unaltered goes, we have got. So I know. I'm not quite sure what we're doing next week. I want to say it's uh, we have invited a uh, a woman on uh, by the name of Jade. She has got a TikTok channel, and we recently did a video on transgender 
uh, ism and the movement uh, that is the transgender movement. So this is a female that has actually transitioned to a male, but detransitioned, found Christ, detransitioned, and is now telling her story on TikTok. And so David reached out to her and we landed an interview with her. Uh, again, I'm not sure if that's this Friday coming up or the next Friday, but it is in the month of November, I'm 100% sure on. Um, and uh, so that look forward to that. And then Josh will be doing whatever week that doesn't fall on. Josh will be doing his uh, second or no fourth or fifth now episode of faith or of uh, the cosmic corner uh, that is his segment that he does uh, on three crowns. We've got uh, Dane Von Ace uh, is going to be debating Carlos Xavier on the thesis. Did the new Testament authors identify Jesus as yod heh vav -Hey? And so Carlos is a known Unitarian uh, apologist that saw a couple of our videos or was directed our way by some of those just all so friendly people in the Unitarian camp that uh, that he contacted me see, seeing if he could set up a debate with Dane. We agreed, and we will be hosting that uh, on December. I want to say, let me verify this real quick. <clears throat> on December the, I want to say 10th, but hold on, let me, let me double check that. Uh, December 5th at 7 p.m. So that will be a Tuesday. Uh, so yes, December 5th, they will be uh, 7 p.m. Eastern time. They will be uh, debating, uh, did the New Testament authors identify uh, Jesus as Yodhe Vavhe? Uh, other than that, I know we've got some stuff coming up also uh, in December. I will have uh, Dr. Uh, or no, Josh will have Dr. Uh, Williams on to discuss his new book on Romans 9. I think I'm pretty sure uh, Dr. Leighton Flowers interviewed him uh, not too long ago. I forget his first name off the top of my head, but Dr. Williams. Is it Jonathan? Uh, it might be. He did a book on Romans 9. I think that might be him. Yeah. I, I saw well, it was part of his interview. Yeah, it was the same guy. So we were talking, uh, Jordan, you and I, the other day about it. So yeah, it's the same guy that that okay. uh, that we were talking about. So yeah, it might be uh, Jonathan Williams. But anyway, uh, so other than that, uh, like I said, we've got we've got some fun stuff uh, coming up. So subscribe to the channel if you are not yet. Again, please consider donating uh, to our ministry. Again, you can do that via super chats, like Gia did a while ago. Um, also PayPal. Venmo and Cash App we take. And other than that, y'all, this has been, again, so fun. And I'm so blessed to be a part of this conversation. And so, again, a huge thanks to Phil, a huge thanks to Jordan. And thank you, Dale, for coming on uh, a little bit later and filling in for, for David and Josh since they couldn't be here. And so we love you guys. Good night. God bless. Stay like Christ.